Good morning, everyone. All of you very brave souls for braving the snow and the sleet and the bad weather. Uh, good morning. My name is Heather Conley. I'm Senior Vice President here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And we are so delighted. We had extraordinary uh, response to this uh, morning's conversation. I think there's a lot of pent-up interest in thinking about uh, Russia and Russian Malign influence. So we are not necessarily the most uh, positive subject to talk about in the morning, but we are so grateful that you are here. CSIS is equally grateful for the great partnership we have had uh, for the last seven years with the Center for Polish-Russian Dialogue and Understanding in Warsaw. This has been an evolutionary conversation over the last seven years. It began uh, with the incredible optimism of the impact of what Polish-Russian rapprochement meant for the countries and for the region. And then, of course, as events began to unfold in, at the end of 2013 and 2014, and we were confronted uh, with uh, Russia's illegal annexation of Crimea, its incursion into the Donbass, and then the last four years of an extraordinary onslaught of malign influence uh, produced by the Kremlin, we really felt we needed to turn our attention to creating an annual transatlantic conversation on Russia, the challenges that we face, the policy dynamics that are occurring either in Washington or in Warsaw or in Europe more broadly. So every year, uh, at the beginning of each year, I sit down with my colleague, Dr. Ernest uh, Wyszykiewicz, uh, who is the director of the, Pol the Center for Polish-Russian Dialogue and Understanding, and we scratch our heads and we say, what could be a meaningful conversation uh, on Russia uh, for, our, for our forum? And of course, this year, we felt with the critical anniversaries, not only the uh, 100th anniversaries of independence for uh, many Central European nations, but also understanding the role and the different manifestations of Russian Malawi influence. So we came forward with this idea of having two in-depth conversations. The first is on the weaponization of history, which I think is a very important tool in the Kremlin's toolbox and an underappreciated tool, particularly here in Washington, about how history is used. And we have an extraordinary panel to help us unpack that. And then our next part of the morning's conversation is to really unpack uh, how malign influence exploits the weaknesses of democracy, whether that's the weakness of corruption, uh, the weakness of uh, institutions that may not be performing, and how that is used. And I'm just looking forward to taking a lot of notes and, and really listening to uh, experts that have concentrated their work uh, in this space and to make us all smarter and, most importantly, more resilient to Russian malign influence. So enough from the CSIS component of this partnership. Uh, please let me welcome Ernest to help uh, us uh, frame this from Warsaw's perspective. And with your applause, please welcome Dr. Ernest Vizhkevich. Thank you, Heather. Good morning to everyone. It is really a pleasure to have this opportunity each year 
um, uh, here in Washington DC to talk to such an excellent audience about issues fundamental for both sides of Atlantic. And when it comes to, uh, to where we are right now, I would also like to touch upon the question of evolution that Heather mentioned. One of our first conferences uh, seven or six years ago was subtitled, I will quote, Building Bridges Over Troubled Waters. Actually, it was my idea. Uh, it was between Russia and the West, obviously, not between US and Europe, as we would probably see it today. Uh, so uh, from this process of building bridges over troubled waters, actually, we are now in the process of navigating through uncharted waters and territories, uh, trying to avoid shoals, reefs, and hostile submarines. So this is where we are today, unfortunately, though it's a challenging time and possibly it, uh, uh, it is very also intellectually attractive time for all of us who are trying to follow international affairs. Then uh, let me just take uh, two minutes of your precious time and tell you who we are. And we, I mean the institution I, I had, uh, the Center for Polish-Russian Dialogue and Understanding, and uh, we were created seven years ago we have a, by the special act of Polish parliament, so we are a public entity, with a shockingly simple, simple objective of fostering dialogue between Poles and Russians and Poland and Russia. Um, so it was a time when the, the word hybrid was not fashionable yet, though I, if I would try to find a way how to describe uh, the institution, which is quite unique, I must say, we are a hybrid type of thing. Why? First, we do a lot of think tank type activities, like this one. Conferences, seminars, lectures, public debates, and advice to our Polish administration. So this is one pillar. The other one is NGO type like activities, because we organize a, a quite significant youth exchange program between Poles and Russians. So uh, about 5,000 youngsters from Poland and Russia have already participated in our programs. Plus, we train uh, translators, we provide grants for young Russian researchers who are interested in studying complex issues uh, of Polish-Russian relations and the general situation in, within our region. And the third pillar is um, um, academic, in-depth research. We are organizing groups of scientists from Poland, from the region, trying to analyze uh, history, contemporary history, uh, about which we are going to talk in a second, because still, at least for our region, it is quite a fundamental issue right now, and, and this mnemonic wars, as some call it, are, um, are being waged by, uh, by Russia since, since, since long time, but in the last four or three years, they, they became quite active. So, uh, and of course, when we are, men Heather mentioned it, uh, this is a very special time for Poland, we are just uh, a couple of days after the celebration of 100th anniversary of our regaining of our independence. Uh, it is not especially only for us, but also for our colleagues from Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Czech, and Slovakia, and many other places in, in, in Europe. So it is important to, to remember the lesson from the, the past. 100 years ago, uh, actually, um, the fact that some empires collapsed and some fell into crisis helped many of nations in Central Europe to, to get freedom. Uh, and it seems that in the recent years, 
uh, real or imagined, self-declared or self-delusional quasi-empire tries to strike back on many levels, not only on traditional one, military, where there's a huge asymmetry still between Russia and the West, but on other a little bit hidden areas in which actually it turns out we are quite vulnerable. So this is why we decided to take those topics. So here we are. Thank you very much, for, for Oliver, for coming. Uh, and uh, let me, let me uh, say one again, thank you to CSIS, to Heather personally, to her team for organizing this, this uh, helping organize this, this event. And I wish you all an exciting discussions. Thank you. Well, Ernest, thank you so much. And I would invite the first panel to come up and please join me here. Thank you so much for lifting that heavy lectern. It's a very heavy lectern. Thank you so much. Uh, so as I said, I'm going to start swinging into the, the first discussion. Nina, please come on up, Suavik, uh, please. Um, history. History is very powerful. Uh, it is a, a powerful message to help instill either one sense of, of confidence in a nation and their, their history. It can be used. Um, to, uh, can be used as a grievance against other peoples or other nations. It is a powerful tool. And, and as I said, I would argue, we're going to be looking at two elements of the tool, I hope, this morning. The, the tool that Russia uses, uh, and that President Putin very expertly uses internally, and to the rethinking of Russian history and the selective adaptation of certain parts of history to create a new uh, an identity, a new Russian identity, but then also how it is used in other countries, such as when uh, a Russian uh, government official had announced uh, several years ago questioning the legality of the, the 1991 independence of the Baltic states, questioning the, the, the reason that Crimea was uh, returned to Russia because it was improperly transferred to Ukraine in 1954, sort of the use of history, thinking, rechanging that history, and then challenging our understanding of, of norms and international law. We have an all-star panel to help us unpack these very challenging and complex issues. And I'm going to start from my far right and work my way down, and that will be the speaking order, if that is all right. Um, first, I am absolutely de delighted that Professor Nina Tumarkin uh, has traveled all the way from New England to join us. Um, uh, Professor Tumarkin is the Catherine Wasserman Davis Professor of Slavic studies and a professor of history at Wellesley College. Um, her research is absolutely, I think, mandatory reading. She's doing right now work on politics of the past in Putin's Russia. Um, she has uh, written such books as The Living and the Dead, The Rise and Fall of the Cult of the Second World War in Russia, and Lenin Lives, The Lenin Cult in Soviet Russia. Uh, U.S. presidents have turned to Professor Tamarkin for insights about how um, the Soviet Union uh, prior to the breakup and now Russia views itself. She rearranged her class schedule uh, to come here, and we are so, so grateful for your comments. After uh, Professor Tamarkin uh, provides her comments, we're then going to turn to Professor Saranis uh, Laukas, chairman of the board of the Vilnius Institute for Policy Analysis. Uh, he's dean of the Faculty of Political Science and Diplomacy and professor in the Department of Political Science. Um, 
and at his uh, university. He is also an expert on the European Commission Against Racism and Intolerance at the Council of Europe uh, for many, many years. And then finally, I'll turn to our dear colleague, Dr. Swalomar Debski, Swabik Debski, director of the Polish Institute of International Affairs. Uh, he uh, was... Um, uh, Ernest's predecessor, so he was at the inception of the, uh, the as the director of the Center for Polish-Russian Dialogue and Understanding, uh, and has uh, written uh, and been the editor of many important publications that help us unpack Russian history, Polish-Russian relations, and so we're looking forward to turning to Dr. Debski for his insights. So with that a brief introduction and our great gratitude, we turn uh, first, Professor, to you for your comments and insights insights on the weaponization of history. Thank you very much. Um, I'm glad to be here. Um, I, I, I hope you appreciate the snow that I brought down from Boston. Yes, right, the Red Sox won. You know, there has to be something here. So. Uh, I have participated in many panels on historical memory, historical politics, uh, but I've never been invited before to speak on a panel with such a provocative title as the weaponization of history. I mean, weapons are intended to kill, to maim, to wound, or they can also be simply wielded and displayed, as is the actual hardware, uh, military hardware that is triumphantly shown off in Moscow's Red Square on May 9th, which is Victory Day. Russian historical politics are largely for domestic consumption and tend to be less co overtly confrontational than is the case in countries whose narratives include heavy doses of blaming their adversaries, blaming other countries, past and present. Um, and the official commemoration of selected historical events, particularly military victories, to promote national, and of course in Russia's case, multinational unity and pride in a powerful Russia, was a central feature in the culture of imperial Russia, certainly in the culture of Soviet Russia, Soviet political culture. Um, and then after that, after the fall of the Soviet Union, or even beginning with the Gorbachev, late Gorbachev period, a period of about a dozen years in which these kinds of public commemorations on anniversaries, usually on anniversaries, were diminished in scope and stature in the late uh, 80s and uh, throughout the 90s, the Putin regime brought them back almost immediately um, in an effort to construct an effective national identity to promote a, and support uh, a, some, a, a quote, post-chaos um, imperative, that is to say post-chaos of the 1990s, um, the creation of a strong centralized state. Uh, and there was a, a message that uh, soon to be or acting President Putin uh, issued on December 31st, 1999, when he was still um, acting president, called his Millennial Message, in which he talked about the importance of not only just государственность, but государственничество, which actually talks about the primacy of the state in Russian history and Russian identity. He did not bring back Stalin whole hog, 
um, after all those years of criticisms of Stalin and revelations about Stalinism, symbolically in a small way, uh, he approved of a bust of Stalin um, in the lobby uh, of the Central Museum <clears throat> to the Great Patriotic War um, uh, on, on, in Victory Park in Moscow. Um, but really, the, the main focus was on military history achieved by a strong centralized state. This was particularly so um, after, you must, many of you might remember, in 2011, uh, mass protests um, in Moscow, in St. Petersburg, um, against rigged parliamentary elections. Um, and at the end of, of those that year, which was 2011, you have immediately the creation of a Russian historical society and a Russian military history society and the declaration um, uh, of something that really ended up fizzling. 2012 is the year of Russian history because of the anniversaries. Uh, the 200th anniversary of the defeat of Napoleon in 1812. Um, some of our guests will, uh, must have loved if they noticed it. The celebration of the 400th anniversary of the liberation of Moscow from the Polish invader, 1612, when Moscow was indeed um, held by Poles. And my favorite, the 1150th anniversary of the birth of Russian statehood, um, when uh, the uh, Viking chieftain Rurik was called um, to rule over Novgorod and then Kiev in 862. Um, following this was a, a fantastic creation in the realm of historical politics in Russia, and that was the creation of a national memory, so-called memory, of the Russian experience in World War I. Now, there had been utter silence about the World War I experience. Um, even though Russia actually lost more uh, men than the French did, both actually more people, both in terms of civilian losses um, and in terms of military losses. But that had been, of course, the bourgeois war, the imperialist war, the war in which um, Russia went down an ignominious defeat with the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk in March of 1918. Um, and so, and, and, and then it was replaced by the heroization of the Civil War of 1918 to 1921, and it was completely forgotten. I mean, a handful of memorials and monuments in the country um, for basically 100 years, um, whereas it's impossible to go to France without, to go to any French town or even village without seeing some monument or even a small little obelisk uh, with the names of the men who had died um, in World War I. But somebody told Putin that in 2014 there was gonna be a big commemoration and he was determined that Russia would be viewed as one of the victor nations and they rushed into creation this national memory of the war. Um, in the schools where they have patriotic education, all the examples for lessons of manliness, lessons of virtue were based on the Imperial Russian, the bravery of the Imperial Russian soldiers. Um, an absolutely horrible monument was rushed um, into creation near the, the Victory Park, which commemorates World War II. Um, and of course, it was unveiled on August 1, 2014. 
But with all of this, um, as is well known, the most important uh, political memory is that of the Great Patriotic War, which is much more often, of course, referred to in Russia now as World War II. Uh, Putin has long since associated himself and so, so with it. Uh, every belligerent country has commemorated World War II. Every belligerent country has created a fake history, an idealized history. Um, Russia is certainly not um, alone in this. And it's also important to note that the celebration of military victory or military defeat, if you think about the Serbian national holiday commemorating the defeat of 1389, um, is a profoundly primal endeavor going back as long as human history or even before human history. I mean, where would we, what do you think Homer is writing about, right? So it goes way back um, and is very, very legitimate. Um, under Putin, what we see, particularly in 20, 2005, the 60th anniversary of the victory, is the Russification of the holiday. Um, now it's sort of Russia and not the entire Soviet people. Um, who had um, uh, managed this great defeat. You also have movements from below, most importantly, the so-called immortal regiment, um, these processions of people who are holding um, portraits of their loved ones who fought in the war. Um, and it started in 2012 in Tomsk. Um, in Western Siberia, and uh, the idea grew, and uh, by, I mean, by, by last uh, May, this May of this year, a million people marched through the streets of Moscow. I did it myself in uh, in 2016, a six-hour uh, procession. Um, you also have other agents uh, involved in the creation of the historical narrative, particularly um, the Russian historical church. Um, but in terms of the cult of the war, you see uh, a transmogrification of the cult of World War II really to a cult of the victory itself, pure and simple, with very little mention of the war and particularly um, the losses. The Soviet war cult had been, uh, of course, celebrated victory, but had been salvational. The narrative uh, said that the USSR saved the world from fascist enslavement, but it all, and it also acknowledged losses. At that time, 27 million losses. Uh, Putin, uh, Gor Gorbachev upped that to 27 million losses. For some odd reason, Putin took it back to 26.5. I mean, nickel and diming these losses. Um, but, uh, but you see, you, and, and you saw the Soviet Union's uh, main thrust here also being never again. We suffered more than any other country in the war, never again, the guardian of the peace. Now in 2015, which we saw an orgy of self-congratulation for the 70th anniversary, matched only in my experience by Harvard University's 350th uh, commemoration in 1986. Um, and of course, this was 2015. It was, it was um, after the invasion um, of Crimea. So uh, bringing in Polish historical memory with this, uh, it's been very difficult um, for, for, for Eastern European countries uh, and Central European countries um, to deal with the challenge of war, with the challenge of memory politics, because they're caught up in their own sagas of victimization. The uh, gold standard for membership um, in the European Union, as sort of as the club, is what the Germans would call Vergangenheitsbewältigungswille, which when I write on the blackboard, it takes up half the blackboard, my students really think. Basically, it means uh, the willingness to face the dark and ugly parts um, of your past. 
Um, and it, and it, so you have this competing victimization which makes it very much of a challenge for these post-communist countries. The competing victimization after Belarus, um, which lost the largest proportion of its population um, in the war, Poland was second in its percentage of wartime losses, and a kind of numbers madness. So we Poles lost three million, the Jews lost six million, um, the Soviets lost 27 million. What does a country merit um, under such circumstances? Think about what France got for its losses um, in World War I. Um, and uh, the Polish war myth, like the Soviet, has been salvational and self-sacrificial. Uh, the Poles as victims, the, the Poles as resistance heroes. Um, and I, I, I'm actually looking here at a wonderful article on Polish war memory by um, a, a professor called Orlowska uh, Bukowska, uh, Orla Bukowska, Anna Maria Orla Bukowska, who talks about uh, the myth that the Poles were, well, the truth, that the Poles were the war's first official victims. They were laid on the altar to be slaughtered. They fought against two totalitarians, totalitarianisms, the purest, noblest of heroes, saved Europe from fascist enslavement um, by their sacrifice to Soviet totalitarianism. So um, if you're going to have this kind of competing victimization um, and grievances, it's very, very difficult. What historical issues um, uh, have exacerbated um, uh, political Russian tensions? Of course, they go back to the partitions of Poland of 1772, 1793, and 1795. Um, the, uh, the Polish uh, rebellions of 1830 and 1863 harshly put down Russification in the late 1880s and 90s. Um, Poland as Russia's greatest victim in the war um, of 1920, the occupation of 39, the Katyn massacre um, in which over 22,000 of the Polish elite were killed by the um, NKVD, the secret, secret police. Of course, the Red Army failure to save uh, Warsaw during its uprising of August 1, 1944. Um, the the, uh, the cover-up of the Katyn massacre, the Sovietization of Poland, um, and all of this. Are there any, any instances in which these kinds of analogous hostilities have been eased? The answer is yes. So if we take a look at 2015, between Japan and Korea, um, there was a kind of resolution to the question of the Korean comfort women in part because Japan was willing to acknowledge the existence of those terrible comfort stations. On the contrary, with China, it's, there's an impossible standoff uh, because with the Nanjing massacre, which took about 150 to 200,000 lives, um, China insists that Japan acknowledge that they slaughtered 300,000 and not 150 to 200,000, and they're at a stalemate. Um, I think with Poland, um, between Poland and Russia, I think it's very, very unlikely that there can be any resolutions, especially um, with the disturbing um, ultranationalism in Poland today. Uh, the commemoration on Sunday, November 11th, was uh, quite distressing and controversial, as you probably know. Um, uh, and, the, uh, and, and as a World War II specialist, I'm particularly disappointed in the uh, new World War II museum in the city of Gdansk, um, which was hijacked 
again by the Law and Justice Party and insisting only on showing Polish glory and none of the dark moments. So actually facing down the dark past would be important for both Poland and Russia, and I think neither of them is characterologically suited to doing anything like that. Thank you. I'm sorry to end on such a negative note, but I am a Russian historian after all, and I'm used to it. Thank you so much, Professor. Uh, lots, to, lots to unpack there during the question and answer period. <clears throat> professor, please. Many professors here. Yeah, nobody. Uh, thank you very much for the invitation, for your attention, and uh, being together with us today. Uh, first, I would like to start from uh, stressing that weaponization of history, which is uh, kind of a uh, strange term, but uh, I would say is a part of information warfare. And information warfare, if you look you know, to the past, I mean, even in, in the primitive societies, you have you know, information warfare going between the neighbors, between the relatives, and you know, storytelling about each other, uh, not nice things you know, written, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, uh, and the problem probably in, um, in uh, the present situation when we speak about Russia, its relations with the neighbors, let's, let's say Poland, Lithuania, uh, we basically cannot expect end to the information warfare as respect to any normal warfare. So there is no end and there is no, mm, let's say, even beginning. Beginning was in the past, at some moment in the history, but you know, to expect the end of this kind of information warfare, it's um, very difficult. Um, how to instrumentalize the whole um, uh, weaponization of history? Very often, I mean, the historians go to say that anything, you know, whatever we tell about the past is kind of narrative. Uh, when we come to the political science, when we come to the um, communication science, um, basically, uh, the term, which is designed by the Brits, um, of strategic narrative is very useful, I would say. And here we can say that uh, strategic narrative uh, is used uh, as a mean by which political actors attempt to construct a shared meaning of the past, present, and future of international politics um, to shape the behavior of domestic and international actors. So it means that basically we don't... Uh, fix ourselves on what was going in the past, though past is very important. However, this vision of the past implies um, certain strategy and certain um, uh, tactics at present and in the future. What kind of world we see in the future? Uh, and naturally, that system narratives cannot be understood in isolation from um, identity, and identity and policy narratives that interact and intersect with. Um, basically, this uh, strategic uh, narrative framework, uh, which we used ourselves you know, very often and in big um, projects related to the perceptions, for example, on EU perceptions in Ukraine, Israel, Palestine, um, uh, in the framework of Jean Monnet, Jean Monnet projects uh, at the European Commission, uh, basically, this kind of strategic narrative framework can explain um, how the international system is understood directly and how it affects um, other international order functions. Uh, when it comes to Russia, and because we hear because of Russia, not because of Lithuania or because of Poland and their, uh, their narratives, uh, basically because it's a uh, strategic position and uh, in Euro-Asian Euro continent and all over the world, 
Basically, Russia projects a strategic narrative that seeks to reinforce Russia's global prestige and authority, whilst promoting multi, uh, multilateral legal and institutional constraints on the other more powerful actors. And here, why United States are worried about you know, the Russian narratives. Um, as a means to ensure Russia uh, stays among the top ranking great powers. So basically, this is kind of instrumental. If, let's say, when Professor Nina Tamarkin spoke, I mean, her, her position was um, uh, that basically everybody is you know, involved in, the, in, this, in this war of narratives. So I would say that you know, the narratives, let's say, of the much smaller neighbors are kind of defensive narratives toward the uh, Russians. I argue that uh, Russia's historical narratives um, and weakened uh, material circumstances have the potential to hamper its adaptation to rapid systems change. And it's happening right now. And I'll speak about this a little bit later. Uh, strategic narratives uh, are means to seek to shape conditions to be conducive to Russian political, economic, and security interests. And the narratives are in turn defined by material conditions. Russia projects a strategic narrative that seeks to reinforce Russia's global prestige and authority whilst promoting multilateral legal and institutional constraints on the other more powerful states. Um, and Russian elites have drawn on a defined security imagery as a response to Russia's identity crisis following the end of the Cold War and the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Um, and the, here, for example, I would like to stress that Russia's historically uh, facing, uh, historically facing narrative could well prove out of step with the system change underway. For example, the way they view China, a kind of part of the multilateral uh, world is rather dangerous for them because the Chinese don't view the system the same way. The Chinese see it from the position of 2G, two powers, China and US, and the rest are like additional uh, Mm, additional small troublemakers around them. Uh, Russian leaders communicate about points of connection with the West, yet have all, also have been um, keen to stress Russian civilizational and cultural singularities. Uh, and here, uh, the substantial difference between the Russians and, let's say, United States. The West, however, largely understands international law and democracy to have a universal normative and technical uh, characteristics. While the Russian model of plural civilizations undermines the possibility of a shared normative basis for institutions. Russia has uh, been coherent in how it has narrated its position in the world and consistent in the view of international order and its desired relationship with the West. Consistency of the Russian narrative indicates that in spite of the current fixation with disinformation and Russian-led information warfare, Russia has been coherent in drawing on a security Im imagery, quote unquote, which sets limits on how much scope for adaptation in Russia's narrative of international order there is. Uh, however, shared language concerning commitment to international law and multipolarity cannot disguise, disguise uh, competing meanings attributed to these words within Russia and the West, making the narrative convergence difficult. And without such alignment, it is impossible for all parties to reach an alignment in narrating the recent past, present problems, and the future world order that they must somehow govern and manage together. Um, what kind of response uh, in the countries around to all this? Um, Polish-Lithuanian response, which is basically structurally very similar, uh, there are certain differences in interpretations, I mean, a few moments, but overall the very structure is um, similar. 
A response is a kind of, uh, both in Polish and Lithuanian cases, a kind of conservative narrative. Uh, ideology of anti-communist and return to Europe, I mean, coming back to Europe from the, um, from the time of being occupied by the Soviet Union. Uh, ideology of conservative modernization, ideology of the cult of the previous generations, um, ideology of the cult of uh, ancient, ancient empires, let it be Polish, Lithuanian, Commonwealth, or Grand Duchy of Lithuania. Uh, in Polish case, Kres ideology of Eastern borderlands, civilizational mission, etc., etc. Um, uh, all this is um, basically locks in both uh, sides. I mean, it locks uh, on one side Russia with its own um, uh, disinformation um, warfare and its treatment of the past, and it locks uh, the neighbors around. I mean, basically, um, uh, I would like to claim for the end of my you know, first kind of initial statement um, that sustainable improvement of the relationship and greater convergence currently seem to be a vague aspiration than a realistic long-term goal. Thank you, Renge. Thank you very much. I feel like there's, a, there's an article uh, to be written with the title, The Beginning is in the Past. So I, I love that phrase. I may have to steal that. Um, uh, Swabik, we are uh, looking forward to your comments. And I have a feeling you'll have some comments to Professor Tamarkin's comments. So I saw you writing furiously. So I anticipate some good dialogue. Yes, but uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much for the invitation um, and uh, the providing this excellent opportunity to, to share my thoughts with um, so distinguished audience. Let me start from, however, from uh, commemorating Big Brzezinski. Um, um, actually, we started the conference on Russia um, 10 years ago. And that was big Brzezinski initiative. Uh, I was uh, then, uh, for the first time, head of the Polish Institute of International Affairs. And we did two conferences in 2008, 2009 on this subject. Uh, so there is a, a long tradition of um, discussion about shaping the policy towards, uh, towards uh, uh, Russia. That was, of course, very different times. But um, uh, this leads me to, the, to the another important uh, element of, of the tradition of behind this conference. In 2011, um, we brought here members of uh, Polish-Russian group for difficult matters. There are a lot of them, of course. And now uh, um, um, these problems are, uh, for a time being, unbearable. So we don't have this institution anymore. Uh, but nevertheless, um, in 2011, there was a discussion uh, um, uh, here in CSIS um, how this experience of Polish-Russian reconciliation may be disseminated, uh, how we can uh, inspire um, other nations in talking about our history and, and uh, uh, our uh, bilateral relations. Uh, now, from looking from today's perspective, I would say that uh, the group itself, from the Russian point of view, uh, was, um, uh, was meant to bring 
and a kind of the concessions on the Polish side on other matters, not the historical one. History was kind of the uh, chip um, um, put by the Russians on the table to gain uh, something very different, something much more concrete um, on economic sphere. Um, so it shows uh, us uh, something about the way how the Russian authorities think about history. My second point, or the third one, would be following. There is something paradoxical. If you go to, the, to, to Russia, to Russian institutes of, or, of a, you know, Academy of Science, of historical institutes, and uh, you immediately realize that they are um, um, mostly underfunded, people are underpaid, uh, nobody actually uh, pays a slight attention what these people are doing. Uh, and one may have an impression that history doesn't matter. And historians uh, actually uh, don't matter. But on the other hand, if you hear Pre President Putin and other um, um, high-ranking representatives of, of Russian Federation, you see that actually uh, the, the picture is very different. Um, so the conclusion is that um, history does matter as long as it provides some political uh, benefits, as, we, as it can be used as a political tool. And um, I'm a political analyst, actually, and I'm, I've spent almost 20 years um, uh, first as an analyst on Russian foreign policy, then uh, uh, and, and advisor to the consequent Polish governments on, on Russia. Um, and I realized that uh, there are at least four elements um, that should be mentioned if we, if we talk about the way how Russian authorities uh, used history. Uh, first, there is a tradition. And we have to, uh, there is a long, a uh, long tradition of, of instrumentalization of history in, in Russia as a source of legitimization of power. And we can go um, you know, very deeply into 17th century and this idea of the Third Rome. And, and by the way, uh, quite recently, quite recently, um, the addition of, of uh, uh, President Putin's speeches um, has been published in Latin. Uh, so that's a kind of the also uh, um, um, example how this history still plays a role. Uh, of course, there are a few people that can read it, actually, in Russia, but there's a manifestation of aspirations, the manifestation of this tra the tradition showing to the, well, first and foremost, I agree here, to the public, uh, that uh, there is a, a well, you know, strong legitimization for Putin's power um, as a you know, follower of the greatest uh, politicians, greatest stars, greatest um, uh, political actors in Russia, which actually made Russia uh, great for the first time. Uh, now, 
uh, Putin is supposed to be uh, a, not only follower, but uh, a politician, which uh, first, um, um, you know, um, regain uh, Russia's prestige at the world stage, um, reintroduce it as a global superpower, and uh, since at least 2008, 2014, as a regainer of former Russian territories. And here, another example of this tradition, which uh, slightly moves us to the, uh, to the issue of the political application of the, of the history. Um, um, I don't know how many of you know that actually those who um, were born yesterday in the former, before 2014, Russian territories may applicate for Russian citizenship according to Russian uh, law of the citizenship. So actually, somebody who was born in Poland in Kielce, for instance, which belonged to the Russian Empire before 2014, under Russian law, may apply to the Russian citizenship. Of course, it's, you know, uh, it's not, um, it, it can be uh, uh, viewed as a non, uh, not particularly serious thing, but uh, uh, behind, the, behind this, um, uh, we can see aspirational part of, of Russian policies. And if we combine this with the way how Russia um, annexed Crimea in, in 2014, claiming uh, its historical right to this uh, territory, which trumped actually um, international law and treaties signed between Ukraine and, and Russia, which, uh, was not which it had been not questioned by the Russian authorities until 2014. We see how history may be used um, as a political, yes, as a political weapon. Uh, another example. Um, um, from the practice of Polish-Russian group for the difficult matters. Um, one of the subjects of our conversations with, with, with Russian counterparts were the question of the, of the Polish looted arts, looted after uh, 1945. Um, and we heard that actually uh, these uh, pieces of art um, cannot be uh, given back uh, to Poland because of a very particular Russian law, which was introduced in 1997. Uh, what this uh, uh, particular act of, of Duma stands? We can read there that actually um, um, Russian authorities cannot handle over looted arts uh, to uh, the members of, um, um, of to, to Germany and the members of uh, the fascist coalition against the Soviet Union. Uh, and once one you can uh, ask uh, himself, okay, where is Poland in this uh, equation? Poland was not a part of uh, Nazi coalition. Poland was not a part of um, 
of uh, coalition which actually invaded Russia in 1941. But uh, under this law, uh, Poland is dis dis included from, uh, uh, from uh, the list of countries which actually uh, the looted arts may be returned. Uh, we can see that this tradition of the, of the great patriotic, patriotic war uh, is not only manipulated in this sense, but it is twisted into the political argument, a political slash legal argument, preventing um, a reconciliation in Polish-Russian uh, relations. Because, you know, uh, solving this issue is uh, one of the, one of the uh, problems which need to be solved if we really think about uh, reconciliation. And two last points I would like uh, to mention. Uh, a part of the tradition we have the three roles of, uh, of how history is, is being used by Russian authorities. First is contextual. Uh, it provides an important context for a very practical uh, policies which uh, Russian authorities um, uh, introduced. There is also uh, the, uh, the um, uh, important part in that, in that uh, um, um, which, uh, which uh, um, is about the legitimization of this power. Um, then the, we have offensive tool of um, history as an offensive tool in in, uh, uh, in policies, and uh, Ukraine and Crimea provides very important an example. If we look at the list of our historical arguments and the way how actually the process of annexation um, uh, had been conducted, we see that uh, Russia used exactly the same. Uh, toolbox which Soviet Union used against Poland and to some extent the Baltic states uh, in 1939-1940. So there was a claim that actually the Polish state failed and actually there was no authorities over, over the territories uh, uh, taking over by Russia in 1939. The same argument was used in 2014 um, in Crimea. Um, Moscow said simply that there, as there is no uh, um, recognized uh, uh, government in Kiev, uh, Russia has a full right to uh, um, protect people of uh, Crimea against the house. Uh, and there is a, uh, the third uh, uh, role of the history, I mean, which could be described as a defensive one. Uh, which provides a relativization, which helps Russia authorities to relativize uh, its own activities, putting them in the, con in the wider historical context. So one uh, um, can uh, see in this, uh, in this way of, of, uh, of um, pursuing uh, policies, for instance, you know, the example of, famous example of Munich 30, 1938. The Russian says that actually, all uh, powers of that time um, 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 had, uh, you know, a dirty 
dirty hands and in, involve themselves in dirty politics. So not only Russia uh, signing an agreement uh, between Nazi Germany, but you know democratic uh, uh, countries did the same in 1938. And um, if we are talking about compromising uh, anybody, all were compromised. Uh, by dealing with uh, uh, Nazi Germany. So once again, contextual role, offensive one, and defensive role of history in Russian politics. Thank you very much. Slavic, thank you so much, and thank you for reminding us uh, that Dr. Brzezinski was really a, a leading force in this uh, conversation, and there is not a day that goes by that I don't wish he were here and helping us navigate these very challenging times, particularly in U.S.-Russian relations. Thank you so much. I have a couple of questions, and then I want to bring our, our audience into, into the conversation. Um, and and Swabik, you were actually reminding me, in some ways, it's not only the weaponization of history. I feel like this is the weaponization of legal tools to, to follow the, the historical um, perspective. Um, and it's an, along those lines, again, this is a question really to uh, I'm going to throw out two or three for uh, our panelists, and then you know I'll first turn to you, and we can just work our way down and, and responding to it. For me, the, the the particular challenge that we face with this weaponization of history um, is the the opening and re-questioning of agreements and what happened. Um, and I'm I'm thinking, and this I find this finds very fertile soil here in the U.S. And I welcome if that was equally true in in Poland and in Lithuania. This question of what was agreed with the 1991 borders, um, the question, and again this gets to back to agreements, whether it's the Budapest Memorandum, uh, the Paris Charter. We had a series of agreements, and now history is saying no, no, those those agreements aren't correct. Uh, the understanding behind NATO, how many times have we heard the three no's and the promising? And so that's a very modern, modern questioning of what was agreed and what was not agreed. And as I said, that helps open up questioning of, of governments. Welcome any thoughts on, on that and resilience, ways that we can uh, effectively uh, and factually report that history. One issue that, that struck me, and Nina, I was particularly interested in your thoughts on this, the history of the Russian Orthodox Church. President Putin is, is very effectively using the Orthodox faith and tradition and the church, uh, but boy, that is a very different historical interpretation, particularly during the Soviet era of that church, and he's bringing back more from the, I would say, the imperial traditions of the church. How do, how do we help understand the history of the Orthodox Church and how is it being modernized today? I'll just have one, one other um, question. And then finally, you know, I, I often do a lot of uh, briefings uh, for audiences about uh, hybrid warfare and how it looks. And I always say one of the first really modern examples of history and hybrid was in Estonia in 2007, the Bronze Night Incident, which was, to very, very briefly recap, the movement of a monument that was dedicated to uh, the Soviet forces of liberation. Um, it, the government moved this monument from downtown Tallinn to, uh, a memorial, to a military cemetery, which they felt was a more appropriate. It wasn't disregarding it, it wasn't, but it was just moving it, which was the uh, three-day, basically, cyber attack shutdown in 2007. 
it was a riots, it was a, it was a major disturbance, and it was based on the, the, dis, the historical understanding of liberation versus occupation, and, and that was creating discord within Estonia. So I just, you know, that was a very powerful reminder to me of history can be so provocatively uh, introduced and flamed and inflamed that it can create conflict. So if that wasn't enough to get you started, I can't help you. So <laughs> Nina, please, I'll turn to you, and you can whack away at whatever you want. I'll the All right, the church. Uh, the Russian Orthodox Church has been, in effect, a servant of the state since the 1660s. Um, and this has, this has not changed. When there was a showdown between the Patriarch and Tsar Alexei Mikhailovich, the father of Peter the Great. Uh, and then Peter the Great actually abolished the Patriarchate, which was not reinstituted until 2017 after the fall of the Romanov um, dynasty. Um, and the monarchy. Uh, in the Soviet period, there was a kind of a sham church that was supporting the state. Some churches were allowed to remain open. I'm sure that you know that um, uh, thousands and thousands of priests were killed, monasteries shut down, um, and so on. Uh, the church was, uh, was reopened briefly. The churches were reopened in 1943. Um, as part of the war effort when it was clear to um, the Soviet state that communist pap and you know dying uh, for Stalin wasn't going to really do it. They couldn't even find the, the vestments. They had to go to the Moscow Art Theater to get the vestments from the opera Boris Godunov um, to actually have this ceremony, attended, by the way, by the American ambassador. Um, and, and then there was a, uh, and, and the churches did remain open until, until Khrushchev's anti-religious um, campaign. Um, of course, under Yeltsin, the church was then brought back um, as a major support um, of the state, and we see this um, uh, under Putin as well. Uh, the church as a, a great, uh, not only a support of the state, but now, and this is, it's, I'm, extremely fascinating. The church now is a partner with the state, almost a senior partner, certainly an equal partner, in shaping the historical narrative. Um, it was clear to the government, uh, to the Kremlin regime, that they have not been able to control the historical narrative to the extent that they wanted to. This is not a monolithic country. There is not just one textbook. There are many historical agents, or as we like to call them, mnemonic actors, that's fancy, um, and many groups and so on. Uh, and the church, uh, funded by Gazprom, uh, cons has constructed over 15 museums called Russia My History with a, uh, a extremely nationalistic um, interpretation of Russia's past, which completely overdoes the role of the church and even the, the, the room that I saw, I saw it in Moscow, um, the room in the 1930s, um, mostly talks about um, the victimization of priests as though those were the most of the people killed in Stalin's terror, which is obviously not true. Um, and the plan is for there to be something like 25 or 26 of these all over the country. Um, so the church is playing an extremely important role as legitimizer um, of the state. And this is why uh, Vladimir Putin is absolutely horrified by the very, very recent current moves uh, towards uh, the autocephalous 
the autocephalous stature of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Um, I think maybe we should let someone else speak. Uh, I can back, get back to the, the subject of the removal of historical monuments is very fraught, very fascinating. I have exciting things to say if you feel like hearing it, but let's hear from our respondents first. I don't want to be hoggy. Hold that exciting thought. We'll come right back to that because I want that. Please, Professor. Regarding legalistic tradition in, in, um, Russia, uh, in Russia, basically, you know, when you look at the 20th century, for example, in all cases, uh, whenever was question of annexation, occupation, uh, the arguments were found to justify the position. So the arguments very often of legalistic nature, because as a state, naturally, it's uh, it, you know it's etatist strongly. Uh, Russian state is etatist in its tradition. So naturally, usually you find the argument why you are doing this and that. I mean, when you look at the history, for example, the 20s, the way they dealt with, with the Azeris or with the Georgians in the South Caucasus, or the way they were putting claims to different territories um, of 39, 40, and immediately uh, in 45, for example, or when you look at the situation with the during the Finnish uh, Soviet war, for example, when they established the government, uh, Finnish government in exile, you know, uh, in order to, to put this government in Helsinki during the time of war. So uh, uh, they have this tradition of uh, legal justification of whatever they do. And uh, at least to put the mask of um, local support for the actions. So it's like, let's say, a referendum in, of, um, in Crimea to justify annexation. So this tradition is alive. However, they very often get into the trap of all this uh, kind of um, um, of their own manipulative behavior. The recent events, and it's related to Russian Orthodoxy, I mean, with the Ukrainian church, were basically the, uh, the Patriarchate of Constantinople um, basically took away Kiev's uh, former metropoly uh, from the Russians and said that, no, 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 in the 17th century we made basically mistakes, so we're recalling them, you know, we're taking back our present. So, in, uh, so here they are getting into the trap and there is nothing to say after this kind of um, uh, place uh, and usage of uh, legal arguments. Um, monuments, yes, monuments, um, I would say, reminds very often of ancient uh, empires where if you put your monument or your god you know, in, in the square market, then it means this territory is yours. So everybody in East Central Europe probably is playing these games as well, I mean, as the Russians do. So in a sense, this kind of uh, symbolic possession of the territory and having your own monuments in place is very important, as well as museums, etc., etc. About monuments, I fully agree that it's it's not only about um, uh, commemorating um, the fallen soldiers, uh, but also there is a policy behind it. So uh, the policy is that you know by this you know protecting these uh, 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 monuments, uh, first Russian authorities. Um, send message to their own public that they protect the memory of, of uh, the great patriotic war. Um, and they are the only protector of this, uh, uh, of this uh, uh, memory. 
Uh, then, um, uh, everywhere where these monuments are, um, has been standing still, uh, uh, Russia may claim that um, uh, this territory once belonged to the Russian Empire on all the sphere of Russian influence. Uh, and that's also a very important um, um, element in, 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 in this. Uh, talking about this, this you know, uh, dispute about um, uh, autocephaly for Ukrainian church, that's a very interesting case because uh, uh, we see that history plays a uh, uh, very important role as a, as a source of uh, uh, also legal arguments. The, the Constantinople uh, doesn't claim that they make mistake in the 17th century. Yes. They say that actually decision um, of 1686 um, was a temporary one and was made um, uh, only because of um, difficulties with communication with, uh, you know, uh, with um, uh, these territories. And for the time being, uh, Russian Orthodox Church uh, got an authority over these uh, territories. Important, the important moment here is uh, the following, that uh, this decision of, of 17th century plays a very important role in contemporary politics. Let's uh, first uh, point. Second, uh, actually, uh, if we uh, read uh, these documents of, of 17th century carefully, we realize that it concerns not only Ukraine, but the eastern territories of the former first Polish Republic. It means that also some other countries um, may be a subject of this um, uh, reversal of this decision of 17th century. I mean Belarus, for instance. So once a Belarusian Orthodox Church uh, would like to claim uh, um, autocephaly, the argument is already there. I mean, uh, uh, and, and Constantinople, Constantinople already made the decision about it. And uh, last point on that uh, is, you know, a few months ago, uh, almost a year, I believe, there was a leak in a um, Greek uh, Orthodox Church uh, magazine in Greece uh, about the conversation between uh, Cyril and uh, Bartolomeo, um, exactly about this autocephaly for the Ukrainian church. And the interesting thing is that uh, uh, um, the head of, of the Constantinople, uh, Constantinople Orthodox Church uh, during this conversation um, provided arguments of historical and legal uh, um, uh, character, while the serial, mostly political one, saying that Ukrainians are actually um, cannot be regarded as a, you know, a nation, that um, they are Russians simply, but only lost they are, um, uh, you know, uh, um, lost their minds in the history in the, in the sense. Um, so uh, it's it was interesting because uh, the serial provided argument on arguments of political uh, nature, 
uh, coined in the Kremlin, in, in fact. It was exactly the same arguments uh, the Kremlin used uh, in 2014 during the war with Ukraine. Uh, again, it shows uh, uh, very well, this, I, and I here fully agree, that the church and Russian authorities uh, uh, go hand in hand um, in uh, disseminating um, the, this narrative about, about uh, the past. And uh, again, also from the point of view of the Constantinople, the history does play a role today. Nina, I want to come back around and have your thoughts on, on the monuments. And then my last question before I turn to the audience, what impact are these historical narratives having on the next generation of, of young Russians? We've seen some Levada Center polling, which, you know, that the, the memory of Stalin, because it's been in some ways reconstituted, um, has different meaning. I just would welcome, and then the rest of the panel's thoughts on what is the impact of this narrative on young people in Russia today and maybe even ethnic Russians beyond the Russian Federation's borders? Uh, thank you. Uh, before I turn uh, to, the, to the monuments, I quickly just want to again remind perhaps the small percentage of the audience that were not wise enough to be history majors um, when you were in college, um, that this kind of glorification of the past, as I had mentioned very briefly earlier, is is so old and pervasive everywhere. Napoleon III, um, Louis Napoleon, created a cult of Napoleon I with which to identify himself. Um, George W. Bush, after 9-11, talked about the greatest generation um, and wanted to associate himself and um, America with the World War II soldiers in a way that had not been seen um, in the 1990s. Think about, think about Charles de Gaulle and his search for national glory and reviving French past glory. You don't need a communist country and you don't need Russia to be doing um, all these things. And in contradistinction, um, we have only now, only this year, Emmanuel Macron um, uh, not only admitting that uh, only Frenchmen and, Frenchmen and not Germans um, ordered the deportation of over 13,000 Jews in July of 1942 at the infamous Veldiv um, uh, uh, bicycle stadium. Um, most of those, almost all those Jews, virtually all of them, uh, ended up in Drancy and then Auschwitz, including two of my own great aunts. Um, that it was on French orders, um, and that it was the French state, very different from the previous explanations and apologies of French presidents. So this is, um, this is very widespread. In terms of the removal of monuments, again, we're talking about something very ancient. I mean, you know, in, in prehistoric people would have a little pile of stones, and that was a monument to commemorate an historical event, often um, a military event. Yes, to a cert certainly during the Soviet period, these monuments were meant to say this is our territory, but they were also monuments not just to the liberation, but to the war dead. I mean, yes, of course, was, we saw the Sovietization of Eastern Europe. Um, we saw uh, the imposition of, of communist rule, um, and, and it was an occupation, but also it, the Germans were, uh, were, were chased out, um, and 
thousands and thousands and thousands of Red Army soldiers died in the process. So removing these monuments, which to the um, significant Russian populations um, has to do with their own history and their own sacrifice, is a very serious matter. Um, and we see it all over East Europe, Central Europe. Interestingly, what a moment to talk about it. I mean, uh, in 2017, on, on August 17th, the very day that Ukraine announced that, it, uh, that the Leninapad was finished, that is to say that all the official monuments to Lenin um, in Ukraine were gone. That was the very day of the Charlottesville um, events uh, and the defacing and removal and the beginning of the removal of Confederate era monuments in our own country. So monument removal has to be taken very seriously. Um, once again, do you want me to continue to talk about young people or? <laughs> I don't want to. Well, all right, all right. So uh, the question of young people uh, is very is very difficult. In older generations. Um, that is to say, my generation and people without gray hair, but middle-aged uh, people still get, more than 75% of them get their news from uh, officially controlled television. Um, young people much less so, um, who uh, obviously get their news more from social media um, and the internet. Most of them, I would say overwhelmingly, don't care about history at all. You see the same thing happen in Japan, the sort of don't know, don't care um, generation. So um, they do love to march in the immortal regiment because it's like a party and they hold up these portraits of their loved ones. A lot of young people are doing that. Um, and it's testimony uh, to the fact that it's much easier to love a dead relative than it is to actually take care of an aging one who's living in your house and is a pain in the neck. Um, so uh, I think that, there's, that these arguments about history are really not very important to young people. Um, the revival of Stalin, I, I don't see a major revival um, of Stalin. There's interest in Stalin. Um, it's very important to note that just in 2017, they're opened finally after you know 26 years of not doing it, an official monument to the victims of repression, of Soviet repression. So at the opening speech, Putin, did, who sponsored the whole thing, did not actually mention Stalin's name. Stalin is not talked about very much because um, obviously under these very difficult circumstances, keep in mind Russia has no allies. A very unusual situation of a country that has no allies. And it's not surprising that you go to the museum in Moscow, um, Russia, My History, and there's a huge, huge statement that's hanging there uh, made by uh, Putin's favorite emperor, Alexander III, who said famously, Russia has only two allies, her army and her navy. So Russia has no allies. It needs all of this history, and it needs it to be re uh, inter uh, sort of viewed as reconciliation, unification. That's why you got an ex almost ex extraordinary silence last year um, when Russia marked, or basically did not mark, the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution, which was so divisive. This Now we're looking at the 100th anniversary of the beginning of the Civil War. Not a peep. They want to talk only about times when the country was together. Um, and so young people are interested in the celebration. Um, Stalin, I don't think it's really 
something to worry about right now. There's much more of an emphasis on sort of the horrors of the 1930s. All of this talk that we saw about about 20, between 20, in the, in the first put, two Putin administrations, um, when Stalin's text, when textbooks were talking about Stalin as an effective manager and so on, that fizzled so badly that there's much more of an emphasis on Stalin as somebody bad, and they try to mention him as little as possible in the victory parades. In 2010, 2010 for the 65th anniversary, the mayor of Moscow, um, Lushkov, wanted to flood the city with portraits of Stalin, and uh, President Medvedev put a stop to it. So they'd rather focus on universal, universally acclaimed events such as the victory over fascism. Thank you. When, yeah. uh, when we speak about uh, young generations, I think this kind of uh, strategic narrative, Russian strategic narrative, narrative of the past, um, muddled into what is legitimately, could be legitimately called um, conspiracy theory, uh, when all world is against the Russians. And this is uh, very problematic for the worldview of the young generations, uh, because basically it continues to propagate divisionism and exclusivity. And basically, and this is the core of, um, ideological core of any xenophobia. Um, an exclusive, I would say, exclusive system of thinking um, will always yield exclusive rights and privileges, also in the international system, and the kind of historical ghettoization. And I think uh, this is what right now is happening, that uh, when we speak about issues of cultural memory, um, um, the way textbooks are written under the guidance of the state institutions in Russia, basically Russia under undergoes uh, historical ghettoization. Thank you so much. Well, I, I fully agree that uh, um, um, historical policy um, has been with us for a very, very long time, and all countries try to uh, um, to engage something, uh, to engage the public into into the consideration about about their own common past. Usually, it is uh, it's being done because uh, um, there is a public interest behind to uh, promote certain uh, approaches to to. Uh, um, uh, to criticize uh, also uh, uh, wrongdoings from the from the past, so there is a, also the kind of the public um, uh, interest into that. I, f I fully agree with that, uh, um, and of course, you know, uh, President Macron was mentioned, and and um, definitely it should be appreciated very much. Uh, uh, his approach towards uh, France, contribution to the to the Holocaust, but uh, uh, in the same time, um, uh, we heard also about you know, the idea of promoting uh, Marshal Pétain as a uh, national hero, and that's that's you know uh, um, um, that could be could be seen as a controversial about monuments. Um, um, I, I, I again, I agree that uh, there is a long tradition behind it, uh, um, but. 
in Poland and in countries of uh, which belonged uh, once to the to the Soviet sphere of influence, there is a, a fundamental uh, distinction, I believe, uh, which makes uh, uh, the issue very political. I mean, um, a couple of years ago, there was a study in Poland uh, about the history of this. Uh, uh, mm, uh, commemorating uh, uh, monuments in the heart, you know, that we are standing in the heart of the cities. And most of them were erased by the Soviet garnisons or um, um, on the insp communist inspiration. So there was no public will behind uh, erecting this, uh, these monuments. Uh, and of course, here we come to the to this you know political dispute uh, whether um, these monuments were uh, you, know, you know were funded uh, to in order to commemorate fallen soldiers, or rather to do it against uh, um, uh, you know, um, people which, which uh, were living in these particular sites, um, to show them that uh, you are now in our hands and you are dominated by ours. And because of, and the reason is that we shed our blood for these uh, territories. So there was a political uh, messaging then, uh, in, into this. You know, having been involved in, in uh, political um, disputes, discussions with the Russians for a very, very long time, my own view is that uh, Poland was late in uh, removing uh, these uh, uh, monuments from the cities to the military cemeteries. I think it should be done 30 years ago. Um, um, uh, I think that it would clear uh, the atmosphere of, of uh, discussions. Um, the problem is that it, there was no appropriate law, and uh, local authorities, you know, some wanted to do it, some others no. There was no policy on that. Um, um, and now, of course, um, the longer these monuments uh, stay, uh, uh, the more controversial um, is, you know, uh, the issue of removing them to the other, other uh, place. I mean, uh, I mean, uh, the military cemeteries. I mean, there is a, the right for them in, in uh, I mean, uh, to to be placed in the military cemeteries, and we have something like 1,600 military cemeteries in Poland. Because Poland used to be uh, a battleground for many, many years. Uh, first, uh, I mean, first military cemeteries which I have, which we have, are, um, um, came from the Napoleonic Wars, 19th century, and then we had the cemeteries of the First World War with you know Germans laying the Russians, Austro-Hungarians, Hungarians, Poles, and of course we do have the cemeteries uh, devoted to to the Second World War. Also the Germans, uh, um, Soviets, uh, uh, Poles. Uh, uh, we have um, actually a lot of places when these uh, um, you know commemorating uh, uh, monuments can be can be uh, put. And one additional comment about Stalinism. I think I have a, a, a different view uh, about it. I think that the Stalin, Stalin 
uh, is becoming more and more and more popular. You know, a couple of years ago there was a kind of the um, um, public voting. Yes, uh, yes, there was a public voting on television when actually uh, Stalin appeared in the first place as a national hero. Then, you know, uh, the results were motivated, were, uh, you know, uh, not manipulated, but, uh, you know, slightly adapted. Uh, to um, uh, and then I think the Peter the Great appeared on the first place, so that's that's uh, uh, about about this you know fashion uh, to put Stalin as a national hero and you know quite recently I think a couple of of uh, months ago uh, there was a young um, um, man prosecuted for retweeting. Uh, um, tweet uh, about Ribbentrop-Molotov of pact when the Soviet Union was uh, named as an aggressor in 1939. So I think uh, uh, we, we have to bear in mind that it is a continuous uh, uh, debate also uh, in Russia, uh, that uh, the, the stance of Russian authorities has been evolving as well, and sometimes they use this argument, sometimes they, uh, they uh, uh, remain uh, silent on that. Thank you. Well, I've failed as a moderator. I'm cutting into that precious coffee break, but I just want to take a lightning round of questions. I know this is a, oh my glory, uh, <laughs> this is what I get. So let's take this, let's, let's take a bunch of quick questions. Um, I'll have our panel very succinctly respond, and then when we go to coffee break, I promise if we didn't quite get there, I, our panelists, I'm sure, would be very open to responding to your questions. So, my wonderful colleagues, we're going to take the two, we're going to work across the room. We're going to take the two questions there, please, Matt, right there. Uh, quickly identify yourself, and I really do mean the comments. We just can't take. I just really need your question, and then we'll move across the room. So, just hold on one second, please. Thanks very much for a uh, very good. Uh, discussion, very lively and interesting topics, wish we had more time. My name is Jaakko Lehtovirt, I work at the Atlantic Council right now, I'm a Finnish diplomat by background and also a historian. Uh, quick question, uh, as, as you asked, uh, where should current Western politicians who are worried of uh, the new trends of Russian history writing and, and the use of history as possibly a weapon, where should they draw the line? Is it useful to get engaged with their Russian counterparts, or should we leave these questions to professionals? Yeah, my name is Mark Tokola. I'm with the Korea Economic Institute. My question is for Professor Tamarkin. How does Putin's Russia deal with the legacy of communist ideology, which at least in theory was universalist, universalist progressive, modernist, secular, liberating, the opposite of Putinism. I'm going to move over here and take that cluster of questions. Donna, we can take the three right there, right? So I guess you can start there and then backwards, yeah. Thank you very much. Um, I'm Marina Fazel, an Afghan-American journalist. Um, uh, this question uh, is for you, Ms. Uh, Tamarkin. Uh, in regards to the monuments, um, uh, the Taliban just sat down in Moscow uh, after a long time for peace talks uh, and reticent to sp uh, discuss peace. 
uh, with uh, Americans and other partners, um, the whole peace process had been stalled for quite a while. So for Russia to facilitate on this level um, is quite a move and uh, is raising questions. Um, it was the Taliban's destroying of the ancient Buddhas in Afghanistan when we are speaking about monuments, um, a legacy to Afghanistan's Buddhist uh, past, a much older uh, past than its um, Islamic traditions that the Taliban are uh, closerly tied to. Um, can you please put in context, in terms of Afghanistan, a country that was pivotal in uh, its uh, bringing down of the Soviet Union, um, and now at a junction when uh, great powers are trying to define their path in the future uh, in the age of great power competition uh, with uh, other powers uh, like China. Uh, what can Afghanistan look towards? Uh, what sort of role can Russia play for Afghan peace and Afghan Thank future? You. And when you talk about... Please, ma'am, I'm sorry, I just have to okay. pass the microphone over. Thank you so much. Another two behind you there, and then we'll have our, our panel just take a quick check. Thank you so much. Uh, Dinah Sputners, Georgetown University. My question revolves around Kaliningrad. You talk about Eastern Europe being Sovietized and ultimately dismantled. With Eastern Prussia dismantled, Konigsberg renamed after Mikhail Kalinin, uh, signatory of the Katyn Massacre, and ultimately became a fortress province for keeping Poland in check and the Balts down. Is Kaliningrad a historical vulnerability for Moscow, given the narrative as well as its own challenges today? Thank you. Thank you. And just one, there was one other hand right there, and then we'll just take those round. Hi, Blake Wilcox. I'm a uh, graduate student in the series program at Georgetown. My question is, um, what role does Vladimir Putin as an individual play in the creation of historical narrative, given his uh, voracious consumption of history books? And is it fair to assume that the state narrative represents per Putin's personal views on history? Thank you very much. All right, my panel, I'm going to have to have you do a very quick response, and then I promise over coffee you can elaborate with and some of the others that we couldn't get to. So Nina, I'm going to start with you and work down the table. All right, thank you. Um, I, I, I'll respond to most, although um, perhaps not, not all of these questions. Um, is it useful to get engaged with historians um, of Russia in Russia? Absolutely. Um, and in addition to the um, Institute of History that was referred to here, there is the Russian Free Historian Society, which was founded about four, four or five years ago. Um, there are wonderful historians, um, particularly in Moscow and in St. Petersburg at the European University. My colleague, Ivan Kurila, who spent a year at George Washington University. I don't know if any of you know him. He's a specialist in historical politics. Um, so, and he teaches at St. Petersburg um, University. Um, and so, yes, uh, there, are, there are wonderful historians in Russia doing terrific work. And I'm very proud of them and proud to be their, their colleague. I mean, not all of them are that way, but I'm not proud of all my American history colleagues either, I have to say so. Um, in terms of what Putin has done with communist ideology, um, having an ideology is against the 1993 Constitution. Russia cannot have an ideology. It's prevented. Um, as far as Putin um, and the Kremlin is concerned, communist ideology was a terrible thing, and communism was a terrible thing. Um, and even though Putin was largely silent on the 100th anniversary of 1917, he had some specifically vituperative words for Lenin, um, whom he blamed for everything. 
Um, so uh, ideology, it, it, it was viewed as being oppressive um, and misguided and, and, and internationalistic, right? Really, it became more patriotic and nationalistic under Stalin after, after 1936, but it was still ultimately internationalist. Um, so a very negative about that. The question of the Taliban and ancient monuments, this is getting a little far, I think, from um, my own expertise, but you have, to, you, have to, you have to see that the, of course, the Russians um, and the Soviets, they didn't, they came in and they built their own monuments, they didn't destroy other people's monuments. Uh, that happened in Russia, the icon, you know, iconoclasm in 1917, and the, and the most thoroughgoing monument remo removal um, in all of history was uh, between 1956 and 1962 during the Khrushchev de campaign, where all of the Stalin monuments um, were removed, except one in Georgia. Um, so, uh, so we see the monument removal um, is, is really is a very different different case. I think um, maybe I'll just leave the well. The, I didn't quite understand. I didn't understand the last question by the Georgetown student. Actually, I'm sorry. Could could you repeat it? Yeah. Just his uh, president. Oh, we will take it. Okay. 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 Why don't you take it? I, I've done enough. Regarding cooperation with the Russian historians, yes. Uh, however, you have to remember that uh, right now on some of the topics there is a state censorship and you can get into the prison for, you know, for writing, let's say, and researching certain issues. And there, there were cases where people basically got into the prison, were released, etc., etc. So all these stories are, um, you know, current. So um, in in times of censorship, you know, historians are somehow, you know, always uneasy about writing about certain um, uh, topics. Um, on Königsberg uh, and the Kaliningrad, um, uh, yes, they are concerned. If you look at the number of articles they write uh, justifying the presence in Kaliningrad, uh, if you look through the Russian Digest, you would see, you know, that. Um, fair number of articles appear, um, I would say, every month about Kaliningrad. So there is a kind of concern how this is realistic in terms of uh, what local population in Kaliningrad thinks about this. I think they are completely loyal and pro-Russian, etc. But in terms of legitimacy, Russia is concerned. Uh, on Putin as a historian, I would be skeptical. Uh, probably the only thing uh, that uh, the Russian vision of the past is um, uh, vision of the history of the of Russia as a history of the Tsars, uh, uh, first party secretaries. So Putin very well fits into the scheme himself, and I think keeping in mind tradition, you know, the mostly probably not his own input, but you know, and central committees, you know, had all kinds of you know ideological departments which were taking care of you know how Soviet Union should be presented. So I don't think. Putin's regime is different from that point of view. I mean, I'm not saying that ideology is similar. Ideologies are completely different. But the tradition, the way state operates and the way state produces, let's say, quote-unquote, ideology and the, the narrative, systemic narrative for the population is um, similar. So, for short, yeah. Um, about, very briefly, uh, um, about uh, Russian historians, yes, I think we are in great depth uh, uh, to them. Uh, most of uh, the findings about the Stalinist regime and uh, uh, the crimes perpetrated 
uh, we uh, we learn thanks to their their research. So we have to. There is also the, uh, the I think uh, Professor uh, um, uh, mentioned that memorial um, uh, organization, which actually um, help to 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 understand what what happened under the communist uh, uh, regime. Um, uh, about Putin's and his uh, personal approach to history, I think he's uh, again uh, um, interested in, in, in that as long as uh, it provides interesting, important, and useful tool um, covering uh, his own contemporary uh, policies. And the the case of national uh, day of national unity, which which was established in 2005, it was yes yeah, is quite illustrative. In 2005, uh, the celebration was presented as um, uh, uh, the symbol of uh, resistance against the foreign powers, foreign interventions. Uh, and in 2012, uh, the story was uh, slightly bit different. Uh, Putin presented this celebration as a commemoration of a Russian weakness, which uh, provided uh, an opportunity for the external powers to intervene. And 2012, the context was very different. There was a, uh, the protest at the Bawotna Square uh, the, you know, Putin was challenged domestically and polit politically and domes in, in, in domestic politics, and he needed this celebration to show that the society needs to consolidate uh, rail ra ra around the flag and support uh, uh, Putin in power, because uh, otherwise uh, the foreign intervention may appear again. Thank you. Thank you, and I apologize to all that I could not get to your questions. Let's go for a coffee break now. You've earned it. Thank you so much for your wonderful attention and questions. Why don't we meet back here in about 10 minutes at 5 before 11, and then we can start our second panel. Please join me in thanking our panelists for a wonderful, rich discussion. Ladies and gentlemen, please, please take your seats. We are just about to begin the second panel, and I have a pleasure to We'll have a pleasure to moderate the panel. Uh, the topic is uh, hashtag Russia resist understanding the exploitation and weaponization of democratic weakness. And when I was reading this, top, this title today, I, was, I think that we should also add democratic strength. It's not just about exploitation of our weaknesses, but also our good points like free press, like openness, like rule of law which actually also serve for some in the uh, in, in outer world as a, as a vehicles to interfere into uh, our affairs. So let me introduce quickly our panelists. We have an excellent group of, of speakers. And uh, on my right, Ana Popescu, uh, director of Global Focus Center from Romania, Bucharest, and also co-author of an excellent report, I recommend it to all of you, Propaganda, How to Measure Our Vulnerabilities. So directly connected actually to what we're going to speak about today. Then um, Charles Davidson, the publisher of American Interests. Uh, I don't think I have to introduce him for, 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 to, to you, all of you, because you know him very well, uh, very much into uh, analyzing kleptocracy, stuff uh, and uh, this marquee financial relations that make uh, world go around, at least underground world go around. 
Uh, and last but not least, Michael Isikov, the chief investigative correspondent of Yahoo News and the author of, uh, of the book that I just have not, not been informed, was just right, translated into Polish Russian roulette um, inside a story of Putin's war on, on America. So we have three um, excellent speakers. The, 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 the topic is quite um, is huge, so I'll, I'll li like to ask all of you for five minute long introductory remarks just to point out from your own perspective and experience related to Romanian cases such or regional cases such to this um, uh, kleptocracy business as such and American case to point out main things that you believe are crucial for the topic of our conversation about the vulner our vulnerabilities and the way how they are instrumentalized or exploited by by Russians and not only Russians, as a matter of fact, in recent years. So, Oana, the floor goes to you. Um, thank you very much. And um, I'm I'm going to focus um, on the Romanian case, although our study um, is regional, um, because I think and and um, at the risk of being. Um, scandalous from, from uh, the get-go. Um, I, I think Romania is a very good example um, of, of perfect return on investment for Russia uh, because we're doing their job for them. Um, and, and I think in, in that respect at least, um, it, it also bears very close resemblance to the US um, situation right now. And, and I think a lot of the um, the more, more vulnerable uh, categories of, of population in Romania very much resemble um, Trump's um, working class white voters who are feeling uh, their world is under threat and they're feeling disenfranchised in, in a way that's quite similar, uh, despite all uh, significant differences, uh, to what's happening in, in Romania. Um, and, and since this is... Um, the, the title of our panel um, is, is about how uh, democratic weakness is, is exploited and weaponized. Uh, let, let me start by saying that the problem is not with democracy, but, but it is with what we've made of it. Um, and that we've, we've seen constant decline uh, over the course of the years in all Central Eastern European countries, with the exception of two, I think, in terms of... Um, uh, quality of democracy by all uh, measurements and standards. Um, and democracy in our region at least, but I think uh, that's a common trait for the transatlantic community, um, it hasn't delivered, it has not been inclusive, but it has ended up at some point being an instrument of exclusion rather than inclusion. Um, it has not provided actual representation and it has not empowered voters to um, either regulate the market or uh, make their uh, claims and, and their grievances heard. Um, it has offered rights, but without the actual possibility of exercising them. Um, and let me uh, give you a few examples from our study. Um, I think Romania is a very good example of how we expected that um, uh, becoming members of the EU and NATO would be like reaching nirvana, uh, you know, the, the, uh, attaining uh, the state of bliss where you would be completely safe and, and your prosperity uh, would be guaranteed. 
Um, and, and I think that was, you know, in, in many ways a legitimate um, set of expectations from, from people. We've uh, consistently ranked as the most pro-EU, pro-NATO country in the region. Um, and and um, instead, what, what, what's actually happened, despite appearances, is that um, EU accession and democratization uh, the, the way it's been done have generated uh, a lot of categories of losers and marginalized categories, and it has increased social gaps tremendously. We've had the highest GDP growth from among all former communist countries, 800% uh, since uh, the 90s. Uh, and still the country is uh, second to Bulgaria only in terms of being the poorest in the EU. And actual um, wages and per capita uh, income has not followed uh, the same kind of growth as the GDP. So people have been able to see uh, that there has been increased prosperity around them, but they just weren't sharing in uh, this this uh, boon. Um, and and uh, paradoxically, it's not just the elderly or the ones coping with more difficulty with, with change uh, that have been the losers. Uh, it's also the youth uh, that... that um, is now living in a, in a completely different world and uh, one that we, I think, don't understand enough. So we have not been able to provide the kind of education that would make them competitive on the labor market. Um, what that's led to, for instance, has been massive outflow of uh, population. Romania has lost three million of its uh, people to um, uh, to the diaspora. Bulgaria has lost 2 million, which in the case of Bulgaria, for instance, a country of 7 million people, that's a huge part of the population. And that's, uh, of course, the remittances have been very nice for the economy, but that's also generated a lack of, uh, of incentive for different uh, engines of economic growth. And it has generated tremendous social trauma, um, because that also means uh, uh, elderly who know that their children are not going to be with them when they grow old and, and sick, uh, kids that are growing without their parents. Uh, so despite the fact that the, the country as a whole has benefited tremendously from open borders, the same open borders have come to be seen uh, as letting in um, sort of the... the um, the, the forces that are going to destructure and destabilize society in the future. And that's also, you know, the case of the uh, migrants crisis. And, and so, um, you know, people have started to see democracy and, and the, the open character of society as generating uh, worse rather than better perspectives for the future. Um, Democracy hasn't delivered also when, when it comes to political representation. Uh, and, and one very good example is that uh, the public agenda where poverty has consistently ranked first in, in uh, people's um, you know, concerns um, is really not aligned with the political agenda. Very recently, just a few months ago, our government um, organized a referendum to redefine the family as being strictly uh, the, the marriage um, as being strictly between a man and a woman. Uh, the referendum had uh, failed uh, because of a turnout that was around 20%. So that's, that gives you the best illustration of how uh, the political agenda really didn't match the, the public agenda um, 
And, and um, you know, add to that the fact that uh, for different reasons, political parties have been investing in their core electorate and have not been interested in expanding uh, that and, and, and becoming truly representative. Um, it means, it, it has meant, um, you know, democracy has also uh, meant uh, the, the inability to be heard, the inability to complain about your grievances, uh, because of course there was freedom of expression, but with the media being underfunded, uh, captured by groups of interests, um, with, with the media turning essentially into a cacophony uh, of, of background noise uh, that drove people away rather than uh, engage them uh, in meaningful debate, people have felt that this freedom of expression was just uh, essentially an empty word uh, that, that wasn't really empowering them and, and making them uh, more able to, to communicate. Um, in, um, in, in many ways, um, I think you know, that the same thing has, um, has happened on the, on the economic front, and, and I gave you um, a few examples. Um, for instance, if, uh, if the current outflow of population continues, the IMF has um, assessed that Central Eastern Europe is going to lose 9% of its GDP in the period uh, between 2015 and 2030. Um, and with the EU being um, perceived as increasingly in crisis and unable and or unwilling to shape the, uh, the, the, the future of the world that we're going to be living in, and the same uh, perception with regard to transatlantic relations uh, that are going through a difficult period, uh, I think it's not just that people have been disappointed with um, what transition has been giving them, but they're also not very hopeful about uh, the fact that the future might bring something better. So what that means is that the, the internal dynamics simply aligns with the Kremlin's goal, which particularly in Romania, unlike Bulgaria or Moldova, um, countries that are more um, inclined to balance between EU and, and Russia geopolitically, in Romania, you have this uh, organic anti-Russian uh, sentiment. Um, so what the, what the Kremlin can expect to uh, achieve, realistically speaking, uh, is to simply slow down, block Romania's uh, integration with the Western community of values um, to, uh, to, um, to increase, to aggravate social uh, polarization, which is already at an all-time high. Um, to essentially make sure that Romania um, can be captured by groups of interests that are um, aligned with or and cooperate with the government to uh, preserve their privilege, grip on resources and power, the kleptocracy uh, that I know the, the you know the following speaker will probably mention. Um, and all of this, uh, you know, doesn't need to carry a, a, a Russian label. It doesn't need to say, um, you know, you, you, you need to love Russia. They know that message is not going to um, get through. But we are very um, sort of wary when, when it comes to something that bears a Russian label. But we are very vulnerable in front of something that doesn't bear a Russian label, especially if it comes to us via a, a Western channel. So whatever kind of vision aligns 
with the Kremlin agenda without necessarily being pushed by the Kremlin, without necessarily leading to the Kremlin very often, most often it's of our own making, um, is something that society will be increasingly uh, inclined to resonate positively with, um, simply because it provides a vocabulary to existing grievances that might have nothing to do with any sort of foreign interference. It might have everything to do with our own incapacity to, to deal with things in a better way. But as long as, they, as, as these two align, uh, if we acknowledge the fact that we are now dealing with a, with a, with a competition of social models that, that kind of takes us back a little bit to the Cold War era despite huge differences um, that, that need to be emphasized. If, if, if this is a competition of social and political models for, for um, social order and political order, uh, the danger in, in these two agendas, the, inter the domestic one and the Kremlin one aligning, is that uh, you know, uh, soon enough, they, they, they might also generate an alignment of foreign policy agendas, of rule of law agendas, economic agendas that's uh, going to uh, make it very difficult for the West in general to maintain its own influence in the region. Um, that being said, I'm going to stop here and I can go into uh, whatever other details uh, when, when we take questions. Thank you, Anna. Uh it is a gloomy picture of uh, of our region. Uh, I'm more optimistic, though it's not my job to to say why. Uh, now I would like to ask Charles to provide us with some info and, and uh, main points on the Western part of the equation, because I believe that the question of the kleptocracy is not related just to the kind of systems we are dealing with on the East and other parts of the world, but also the, the nature of the system we created uh, here in the West. Charles. All right. May I briefly comment on Oana's remarks, which I thought were brilliant and brilliantly delivered, and I think your English is extraordinary. Uh, so actually, what strikes me is that almost everything Oana said could apply to our dear United States of America. Uh, first point, democracy hasn't delivered. Well, uh, if we look at the Trump-Sanders vote and we add the two together, it's uh, huge above 50% of our population. And uh, as Elliot Cohen put it very, very early on in this whole process of us sliding into a new 1930s, the pitchforks are out. And rather strange the extent to which that doesn't seem to be uh, terribly conscious in the minds of our, our current plutocrats in charge of things. Uh, part of that, there's a remarkable study that John Weicker did at uh, the Hudson Institute, where he uses uh, statistics and studies from the, uh, I think it's the Federal Reserve that no one had exploited before, which look at wealth and what happened to middle class wealth at the financial crisis. Everybody talks about income, but nobody talks about the fact that the savings, the capital of the middle and lower middle class, especially the lower middle class, in many cases was completely wiped out because of the mortgage crisis, the housing crisis, and all of the uh, insanity, which it was uh, everybody's fault because nobody put a gun to anybody's head, as far as I know, to uh, make them sign some insane mortgage contract. Uh, a uh, young and wonderful American interest author, Mary Snegovaya, I saw her in New York uh, sometime, I think it was early this year or last year, and I told her about John Weicker's study, and she piped up and said, 
wow, we know the same things happening in Europe, and that was actually something she covered in her dis dissertation, PhD dissertation uh, at uh, Columbia University. So she wrote a piece about how exactly the same thing had occurred in the FSU space in Europe and in Western Europe more broadly. So I think this is a hugely neglected issue and highly relevant to what's going on here. Um, then the second point was with representation, uh, the extent to which a, uh, Romania is a, uh, providing really a representative democracy. And I would say we certainly have a huge problem here between the Electoral College and Hawaii having two senators as well as New York or California. We should be the laughing stock of the world and shut down our democracy promotion until we fix things a little better here. EU, NATO, Nirvana, I couldn't find an analogy for that. Uh, lots of categories of losers uh, will uh, fill in the blanks. We don't have a problem with that, although one might add that there is the uh, the, the, the white losers of the Trump vote, and then the non-white underclass has been completely neglected, was neglected by President Obama. Uh, we put together a uh, dossier at the American Interest Magazine was a few years ago. It was very difficult to put together, but I think it's quite excellent. I dubbed it, uh, gave it the nickname, the After the Wire dossier, and the origin of it was that Frank Fukuyama told me that you've got to watch The Wire. It's the best thing that's ever been done on TV. And so that gave me this idea, and then Adam Garfinkel, our editor, pulled this together with the assistance of uh, our other uh, uh, stars, if you will. But it was very difficult to find people who could write about that, actually. Uh, youth in a different world, well, we don't have, uh, I don't think we really have an issue with that. The open borders and the destabilization, destabilization of society, we have that potential problem too. Media captured by groups of interest, I don't think we have that. I think the fourth estate is very healthy in our country, and I think Thomas Jefferson would be proud of us, and we're kind of, uh, as, as a uh, active and aggressive member of the fourth estate, I would say that we're holding our own quite well, although many of you may disagree with that, and I'm of course not referring to every single institution in the fourth estate, but to uh, most of them. And in terms of outflow of population, well, we don't seem to have that problem, uh, although Canada is not far. Uh, so that sort of covers Oana. Now, as far as uh, all of this ties together, I used to be the A vice chair. We always have to say chair now, although a chair is something we sit on. So I'm going to say a vice chairman, and there was not a vice chairwoman, although we should have perhaps used that term if there had been. Um, and uh, so this whole democracy promotion, freedom decline thing, I had a front row seat for these annual, uh, 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 um, these annual um, uh, attractions to uh, the uh, prescription of antidepressants that we would put out every year, the freedom in the world, and um, uh, it was a uh, it was a very sad thing. I finally had to resign because I couldn't take it anymore. Uh, and, uh, and then I've had a lot of dealings with NED in the uh, anti-kleptocracy field. I suppose that could be a way into speaking what I'm supposed to, uh, speaking about what I'm actually supposed to speak about. Um, and uh, so uh, that sort of uh, wiggles us into the subject that uh, uh, Ernest wants me to, to address uh, further. Um, interestingly, NED 
has adopted anti-kleptocracy as one of its institutional priorities that it reports back to Congress on. So that was an infection that, that I found quite gratifying. And we've taken this program that I used to run at the Hudson Institute was a little bit large at one point, and then it shrank a bit when we uh, abandoned uh, the search for primary source material because uh, one didn't need it anymore. The uh, problem was sufficiently understood uh, in, in the policy community here and on the Hill that uh, we didn't need to do it anymore. I mean, pe people finally understood how Putin came to power, for instance, which people didn't have a clue of four and a half years ago. And we worked very closely with Karen Duisha, who became uh, the late Karen Duisha, I would should say, since she passed away earlier this year. And um, her book, Putin's Kleptocracy, is very much one of our handouts uh, uh, that, uh, well, one of my handouts was one of was one of our handouts at Hudson Institute, and I always kept a bunch of them on our shelf. If an uh, important reporter was uh, consulting us or something, I'd, I'd give uh, uh, she or her, uh, she or he, sorry, uh, our reports, and then usually a copy of Karen DeWish's Putin's Kleptocracy. And then we also showed a film which we translated, which was done by some uh, squabbling Russian investigative reporters. Um, uh, uh, and it was basically the film version of Putin's kleptocracy explaining and showing uh, how Putin came to power and the fact that this was a, the, a gangster network taking over uh, the country. We worked with David Satter, who used to be considered a total nut job for his notions about the uh, uh, FSB and Putin blowing up these buildings uh, as a uh, way of consolidating their power, but that's generally accepted now as not, no longer being fake news. Um, in terms of, um, no, in, in terms of the West role and all of this, I mean, the thing that, I, the reason I started the kleptocracy initiative is I thought this is absolutely nuts. Putin is about to go into Crimea, and we could stop all of this in, in its tracks if our political class and uh, if there was decision making in the West regarding the fact that uh, the whole structure of the regime, Putin's kleptocracy, is based on the kleptocrats being able to loot their own country and then uh, our. Uh, our uh, law firms and uh, not so much the uh, the banks, but certainly our private equity and hedge fund people, and this whole uh, offshore industry that has been uh, uh, become much better understood by a much larger number of people, thanks to the Panama Papers, thanks to the Paradise Papers, and then thanks to what was finally on the front page of the new, of the papers. Uh, with Manafort, where people actually saw all of these offshore transactions, and uh, it all became no longer it all became visible and very concrete. So uh, what what we see, and the problem we have, and this problem we very much still have, and it's been my focus now, uh, is the West's enabling role in terms of sustaining the current situation of kleptocratic pressure on us, which is about corruption export. It's about uh, destroying, if possible, liberty, 
let's not even talk about democracy and freedom, but perhaps liberty is the word we should use. They don't like it, and it's very much against their interests. And whether or not China is a kleptocracy anymore is, is a, a debate. I don't think it is. I think now we have the most horrific and frightening Orwellian uh, dictatorship that the world has ever known by far. Uh, four and a half years ago, you could really think of China as being quite similar to Russia in structure, except it wasn't one person at the top, it was seven families, and uh, it had a lot of the similar characteristics. Uh, so, uh, and we, so we've left China aside because of this. It's a, it's a different problem, we think. So as long as we, but as long as we provide this punch bowl, as long as we consider it respectable, for all our major law firms to be involved in this enabling industry. It's basically all of them. I don't know a single one that isn't. Uh, as long as we continue to allow Liechtenstein to exist as opposed to sending in a helicopter with uh, three uh, almost retired special forces guys with uh, water pistols, which is about what it would take to take the place over. I mean, we occupied Granada for a bit. We went into Iraq. We went into Afghanistan. Uh, we need to shut these uh, places down. And uh, there's no excuse for it because they represent, with our collusion, the suicide of the West. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, that was really intriguing. And the fact that we have this wealth um, uh, expiring from the middle class, and on the other hand, we have wealth defense industry flourishing, but focusing the wealth of, of the others, not the middle class. It's, it's very telling and sad feature of uh, of, of, of our environment. Now, uh, the U.S. case, uh, uh, Michael, please. <laughs> um, yeah, well, um, uh, it's great to be here, and it's kind of a propitious time in my world because. Um, Having followed the, the, the Russia uh, interference in the U.S. election story from the beginning, uh, uh, you know, as it emerged during the campaign and, uh, uh, and ever since with the Robert Mueller investigation, you know, all expectations are that we are coming to the climax uh, and that uh, sometime in, in, in the coming days and weeks um, we'll be uh, hearing from Robert Mueller who's been, you know, was quiet during the election but uh, uh, the, the, the common thinking is that um, um, we're, we're coming on the grand finale and we'll finally learn what he's found and what he's not. Um, there's um, a lot that we can still speculate about, but um, I, I do think you know one of the things, one of the developments that keeps fueling the story uh, uh, is the president himself. And I should point out that just as I was coming here, uh, I, I checked my Twitter feed, and sure enough, uh, the president was on another Twitter storm about the Mueller investigation, which could be a sign that he's uh, aware that something is, uh, is about to drop. But it was particularly striking um, uh, what he wrote just about an hour ago. Uh, it was, you know, a, a, a series of tweets about Mueller and uh, the witch hunt and the whole thing. Um, but um, in the last tweet, it was the only collusion is that of the Democrats with Russia and many others. Why didn't the FBI take the server from the DNC? 
That really leaps out at this late date because the only purpose to raise that, and if you remember back at that remarkable Helsinki uh, press conference uh, where he sided with Putin over the findings of his own government, um, uh, he raised the same question. And the only point of the question is to somehow suggest that the Russians didn't hack the DNC and didn't provide the emails to um, uh, uh, to WikiLeaks, um, and you know I, I have talked to people that have briefed the president uh, on this uh, issue multiple times, um, explaining, laying out the evidence. You know, you had going back to the, the January uh, 2017 intelligence assessment, uh, making it crystal clear all the reasons that the, um, uh, that the intelligence community unanimously concluded uh, that this was a Russian hack of the DNC. And then you had the Mueller indictment, which couldn't have been, you know, clearer with you know the interceptions of emails and dates and times um, showing uh, the particular people for the military GRU uh, in, in Moscow who engineered the hack and then through Guccifer 2.0, their online persona, provided them to WikiLeaks on July 14th, 2016 in, in, a, in a, a, a zip file uh, email attachment, um, you know, leaving absolutely no doubt um, uh, what the trail of evidence was here. Um, and, uh, and here we have today our president, once again, sort of suggesting, well, maybe there's some other explanation for what happened. It wasn't the Russians. Uh, uh, it could have been some, you know, DNC insider or somebody from the Clinton campaign or whatever. Um, but the point is that um, this is the kind of stuff that um, really um, uh, fuels the story. I, I can't tell you whether Mueller's got the smoking gun that's gonna show there was coordination and communication between people in the Kremlin and the Trump campaign during the election uh, that um, uh, will explain it all. But the fact that um, our president would still be putting out stuff like this is what, you know, uh, to those of us who follow this, raises questions, why would he keep doing this? And, you know, add on top of that, you all saw um, the, um, uh, the ceremony in, in, in Paris uh, over the weekend, uh, where our uh, somber, rarely smile, you know, a somber president sits through the whole thing glumly while Macron is lecturing him, you know, and then when's the only moment that he breaks into a spontaneous smile when he sees Vladimir Putin, you know, uh, a few seats down. I mean, it, it, you know, how do you explain that? Um, uh, you know, I've all, uh, you know, I wrestle with this in the book. We uh, go through all the possible explanations, but it is still um, just remarkable when you see that uh, because it seems so inexplicable that the one guy who can brighten up the face of our president is um, Vladimir Putin. Um, I don't, you know, as I said before, I cannot tell you whether Mueller's going to have the smoking gun uh, uh, that shows that whether there was coordination, collusion, however you want to term it. Um, but 
you know, I should point out that um, we have already learned a lot from his investigation uh, and uh, for all the, uh, from all the other inquiries uh, that, uh, and probes that have been done about this. And it's relevant to this topic because it, you know, um, we've talked here and, and earlier about the various ways that the Russian Federation has, has sought to influence um, and destabilize um, governments in Eastern Europe, in Western Europe, and in um, uh, and, and culminating in what they did in the in the um, in the United States in 2016. And I just would go down some of the elements because in in many ways. Um, what we saw in the United States in 2016 was the culmination of um, uh, various Russian efforts um, over the last decade. Um, uh, you know, in, in, in many ways, they were sort of doing a, a, a trial run. They were a, a, a sharpening and polishing a playbook that we saw come into full fruition. Uh, in um, in in the uh, Russian attack on the uh, on the American election, uh, which was far more coordinated, far more sophisticated, um, um, and and far more uh, encompassing than I think any of us knew at the time. Even those of us, such as myself, who were reporting aggressively on what the Russians were up to, didn't really grasp the magnitude of what was going on. And I think that's doubly true, and more importantly true for the U.S. intelligence community, which um, uh, really uh, had an intelligence failure uh, in, not, in not being able to connect the dots and put the pieces together. So um, cyber attacks, obviously, that was the, the sort of, you know, one that got the most attention, you know, began, you know, we saw the Russians do it in Estonia. Um, we saw them do it in Ukraine, uh, uh, you know, uh, shutting down the uh, uh, electric grid in Ukraine in uh, December 2015, uh, years earlier, basically shutting down all of Estonia, a, a country highly dependent on uh, e-commerce. Um, uh, and uh, uh, it's um, uh, on the internet, um, all shut down over the movement of the monument. You were in the earlier panel, people were talking about that. Um, disinformation and, uh, and propaganda, we saw that uh, in uh, Russia's intervention in um, Ukraine. Uh, in, um, in 2014, uh, the manipulation uh, of, um, of social media. Um, the Internet Research Agency uh, didn't spring up uh, in 2016 overnight. It was uh, active and uh, um, uh, aggressive in, in, in 2014, 2015. Um, uh, in, um, and, and, you know, most remarkably, and this gets to the intelligence failure aspect of it, was known, was written about in the Russian press. You had uh, whistleblowers, uh, one in particular, uh, Ludmila Sobchak, um, who was working for um, the Internet Research Agency, the troll farm in St. Petersburg, um, who, when uh, Boris Nepsov uh, is assassinated uh, in the, uh, um, on the bridge right outside the Kremlin, um, the Internet Research Agency gets ordered to uh, you know, churn out uh, social media posts blaming it on Ukrainian nationalists. Uh, and that was the breakpoint for that um, 
whistleblower who I just mentioned, Ludmila Savchek, who says, I can't do this anymore, and she goes to a Russian reporter and, uh, and, and lays it all out, what the troll farm was doing. Um, uh, and then, um, of course, the, um, uh, 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 the cultivation of political elites and influential political forces. We saw that throughout uh, uh, Eastern Europe, um, in particular, uh, you know, Czech Republic, um, uh, Romania, elsewhere. Um, um, but um, you saw it again um, in the. Um, so all, it, it, it was, uh, my point was, all these come together in 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 2016 in the United States. Cyber attacks, you know, the DNC, the Podesta emails, um, the uh, 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 propaganda, disinformation. Um, uh, and, and exploitation of social media, Facebook, Twitter. Um, just take a look at the front page of the New York Times today about how Facebook was um, uh, not just, you know, when it sought to cover up the fact, uh, the degree to which they had been uh, exploited uh, on, um, uh, during the 2016 election, even though the phony accounts being set up were being paid for in rubles. You would have thought that would have been a tip-off to uh, somebody at Facebook. Um, the, the accounts uh, 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 supposedly in the name of Americans are being paid in rubles, you would have thought that might, you know, have raised a few eyebrows, but apparently it didn't. Uh, and then the uh, cultivation of political uh, elites and influential political forces. Um, I um, attended a, um, a, a very illuminating conference that uh, Charles had put together uh, a few months ago uh, featuring uh, Jose Grinda, the Spanish prosecutor, sort of the Robert Mueller of Spain, who has um, uh, been uh, aggressively prosecuting um, uh, Russian organized crime gangs and, uh, uh, and oligarchs in Spain and has gotten ferocious, uh, uh, come under ferocious attack uh, himself, much like uh, Mueller, although actually in Grinda's case it's a lot nastier. Um, they've accused him of all sorts of uh, uh, personal indiscretion. In, in efforts to discredit him, but um, at the conference I asked uh, about um, one guy in particular who I had written about uh, last year uh, of high interest to me, uh, Alexander Torshin, who, is a, who was a deputy governor of the Russian Central Bank uh, and uh, who had made multiple trips to the United States, become a lifetime member of the NRA, showed up at uh, uh, many uh, NRA conferences, uh, including meeting Donald Trump Jr. at the uh, NRA annual convention in um, uh, Louisville in May of 2016, smack in the middle of the campaign. Uh, and um, uh, torsion was of interest to me because um, uh, it had been reported uh, by El Pais in Madrid that uh, Grinda's prosecutors, uh, the Spanish National Police, had wiretaps of the um, uh, a, a convicted chief of a Spanish of a Russian organized crime gang in Mallorca. Um, talking to um, uh, Mr. Torshin, 
the Russian central banker, uh, in which um, the organized crime guy, uh, gang leader, is referring to Torshin as his uh, El Padrino, as his godfather. Uh, and um, uh, you know, when you talk about kleptocracy, there it is. A uh, so. The Spanish Grinda and the Spanish National Police actually had a, uh, uh, plans to arrest Torsion because he was flying into Mallorca, uh, uh, plans to fly into for the birthday party of the uh, organized crime guy in Mallorca. Okay, you, I mean, you can't make this up. It's like almost right out of The Godfather or something. Uh, and, uh, you know, they were, st the national police were stationed at the airport, um, all set for uh, uh, torsion to uh, land. And um, uh, he gets tipped off and never shows up. Um, so, uh, uh, that was of real interest to me, and I asked Grinda, I actually made some news, or Grinda made some news, thanks to my questioning, at uh, the conference that, uh, that Charles put together. I said, has you know the FBI expressed any interest in your wiretaps? And he said, well, actually, yeah, they just recently came to Spain to get the transcripts of those wiretaps, uh, which was the first indication that torsion was uh, in the sights of US law enforcement. And of course, just um, uh, a month or so later, um, the woman who was working for Torsion, who was his sidekick, who was side by side as he showed up at NRA conventions, at CPAC conferences, at all these um, uh, confabs of uh, uh, American conservative political organizations um, uh, was arrested, and I'm speaking of Maria Butina, um, who um, got a lot of attention. Uh, I think she's still now in jail, uh, charged with being a uh, Russian, uh, uh, an unregistered Russian foreign agent. So my point is uh, that all these uh, elements that we saw in other countries, we saw come together in the United States uh, in 2016. We've, it's laid out in Mueller's indictments and other indictments that have been brought by US law enforcement. And it's a, it's a useful roadmap for how the Russians do this. Thank you very much. We're still having about 25 minutes, so I would like to open the floor for Q&A session. Please uh, let me collect some questions. Uh, if there are not any, I will start with my own, and then please think about what you would like to ask. Uh, I have a very simple question. Uh, how, how to increase the resilience? I mean, because we are very good in diagnosis. I mean, everyone is very good in it. But when it, when it comes to prescriptions, how to actually heal the wounds in Central Europe, in US, in the Western world, we have some problems uh, with that kind of part of equation. So this is, this is from me, and please raise your hands. Here, the gentleman over there. But, but please wait for the mic. All right, let's try it now. Wonderful. 
My name again is Chris Lay. Um, I conducted research on hybrid warfare and emerging technologies for organizations such as NATO and the Department of State. My question, similar to yours, is on defending and countering against hybrid warfare tactics uh, implemented by the Russians. If we look at um, what's going on in the Baltics, we look at Crimea uh, and the Balkans and even the United States, you see that the beginnings of these types of tactics involve the funding of NGOs, Russian learning programs, Russian historical courses, and misinformation campaigns. And you can largely look at these as being um, even good-natured or negligible if you're a national government. And especially in democracies, once these people are being influenced, no nation is going to find it easy to coordinate a response in terms of a a warfare-like response to a cyber attack or misinformation campaign. Likewise, an international organization like NATO isn't going to find it convenient to organize their response against these similar tactics. So in your eyes, what would be the best methods of deterrence in these manners? I'm Meredith Pontius from American University. Um, we talked a little bit about the divisions and part of Russian tactics is to foment divisions uh, between different parties, political parties specifically. Um, we're seeing this right now both in the United States and in Europe with the uh, rise of the far right. In terms of along the same lines of resiliency, how do we foster that resiliency with also maintaining democratic values? Uh, hi, my name is Arias Chatra. I'm, uh, I do Homeland Security and Cybersecurity uh, Research at the Heritage Foundation. Um, it seems like Russia has always taken advantage of the fact that in the West we have a free press, we allow outside criticism, transparency, and so forth and so on. Um, I can remember reading old um, op-eds in the New York Times where they said, well, who does Mr. Reagan think he is? And the Soviet Union has a great health care and education system that we should emulate. So why do we all of a sudden, why is this all of a sudden an issue that Russia is running a disinformation campaign when they've always done this? Okay, maybe one more. Here. Hello? Okay. Uh, my name is Rick Pearson. Uh, I'm a labor lawyer with the federal government. Um, my question, I guess, is more for Mr. Davidson. You referred before to the uh, active participation, cooperation of um, financial and real estate institutions in the United States and elsewhere in, in the West uh, with the Western, I mean, with the Russian kleptocrats. Um, that that leads to the. Uh, um, uh, the next dot on that dotted line, when you talk about um, real estate uh, entities cooperating, laundering Russian money, is um, our president, who was head of a very large real estate corporation that um, uh, clearly had a lot of business with Russians. So my question for you is, um, to what degree do you think the Trump empire, the corporate empire, not, not him as the president, but uh, his real estate empire um, is equally complicit with some of the other things you're talking about. Okay, thank you. So let's get back to the panel. 
couple of issues, resilience, more offensive approach, keeping democratic values intact, and the hype about disinformation, why, why is that so? And, and money, please. Well, um, you know, let, let me offer um, a, a bit of a system of how to, to look at this. And, and I think we have two um, parallel tracks that we, that we need to, um, to look at. One is actual um, elections interference, um, cyber attacks of all sorts, hacking, and, and so on and so forth. Um, that is, at least when, when we look from Europe to the European elections and to the actual numerous rounds of elections, I think there are like 16 at least in Europe until 2020, that's the most immediate threat. Um, and that is one that I, I think governments are to some extent more comfortable um, dealing with uh, because it falls under their responsibility. It's stuff that they've done before, not in the very same way, but using the same institutions and using similar instruments. Um, what we uh, what we need to do differently, of course, because we're we're looking um, here as well at, at two things. We're looking at, at attacks, um, whether they are of a, a cyber a warfare nature or other, and we're looking at the actual capacity of voters to make informed decisions, given uh, the increasing ability uh, of uh, you know, stakeholders to use micro-targeting uh, and, and the way technology in functions as an enabler. Um, so to, to counter that, I think, um, one, we need to have to clearly identify the threat and to identify the perpetrator. There is no threat without a perpetrator. Um, that's, that might sound uh, as the obvious truth, uh, but it's not, because very often, uh, for political reasons, we avoid naming the source of the threat. Um, we, uh, referring back to the study that we, that we carried out, uh, we found when, when we tried to measure um, resilience to, uh, to, the, to the Russian threat in Georgia and in Romania, so two countries, one of which is an EU and NATO member, one of which is not, um, we found that on the foreign policy and security uh, field, they, they scored uh, very similarly. The reason being that Georgia was actually able to very clearly identify the enemy in 2008 with the uh, Georgian-Russian uh, war. So that's allowed the, uh, the, the, the institutional establishment to develop both the uh, strategy and the instruments uh, to, to increase resilience. That's not been the case in Moldova and Bulgaria. Uh, they, both countries have uh, hesitated for years to actually introduce in their national security strategies the idea that Russia might actually constitute a threat. So they have not been able to develop uh, the, the instruments to counter that. So really, we need uh, clarity on identifying uh, the, the threat and the perpetrator. We need clarity of definitions. You know, if you can't name it, you can have it. Um, you, uh, we, we need to, uh, to look at the possibility of regulating um, 
online, at everything that, that relates to online uh, campaigning in a similar way uh, that we have done for uh, TV, radio, for uh, print materials, um, whenever, you, at least in, uh, in Romania, in the European Union, um, you need to have uh, the, the source of the money very clearly identified when you, when you publish. Um, elections ads and, and so on you don't need to do that uh, necessarily on on social media platforms so there is a need for for regulation uh, you also need to share responsibility with business with uh, with companies uh, with uh, obviously uh, again social media platforms um, you you need to increase the costs for for the adversary to follow the money trail uh, more transparently and with better instruments we, we obviously, for, for that purpose, I think we need to both invest more in, in investigative journalism and, and generally in, in higher quality uh, media. Uh, we, we need coordination and the multi-stakeholder response because indeed this is, this is a transnational threat. It's not something that we can respond to uh, in isolation. Um, but I think you know this is the first track. This is this is the one that's that again I emphasize. I think we feel a little bit more comfortable with, although uh, it, it's tremendously challenging. There's the second track, which is more of a societal challenge, and it's and it's harder to accept for for many governments. Um, one, because in many cases, governments are part of the problem and not of the solution. Secondly, because it actually requires a whole of society approach. You cannot, uh, you, you know, you, you don't just go to the usual institutions and, and, and do what you've done before. Uh, and, and that's something that's hard to accept and to change. Um, but the same way that in, in cases like Cambridge Analytica and others, uh, individuals have been profiled and will be profiled for uh, purposes of meddling in, into elections, uh, Russia, and not only Russia, is doing um, um, profiling of societies and states. And, and the kind of... Um, to, to conceptualize this, uh, I, I think we need to think of it as push and pull factors. Push factors are what makes people angry? And pull factors are why is the alternative vision for society that Russia is proposing uh, a solution? Um, and, 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 and to look at that, there, you know, there are concentric circles, if you wish. In, in, the, in the very middle is the individual and, and the individual societies with their own vulnerabilities. And then the next, the second circle, and there are three, I think, that the second circle is the local and, and regional environment uh, which we have contributed in, in creating. And, and it's, if you wish, uh, Russia is doing a sort of a state terrorism uh, that's, that's uh, organized a little bit like the Al-Qaeda network, meaning it's encouraging um, the networks in all of these countries and regions to radicalize and to promote agendas that align with their own without necessarily uh, centrally coordinating them. So the, the local and regional environment means that the individual with their grievances, they're exposed to a buzz where, for instance, the, the Orthodox Church in Russia uh, comes up with a message that it spreads throughout, let's say, Ukraine or Georgia. Uh, it doesn't actively um, 
establish it in Romania or Bulgaria, for instance, but the Romanian Orthodox Church is very happy to take it on board since it's, it's there, it's around. And then the third uh, and, and largest circle is the global public opinion, and Russia is investing in this as well. And it's doing it in similar ways in the US, in Europe, everywhere, um, and in a connected world, uh, that's, that, that's also full of resentment, as I, as I was saying, on the basis of individual grievances, people are, are exposed to, to the same kind of uh, ideology, if you wish, uh, that, that's helping uh, radicalize them as ISIS, for instance, if you look at violent extremism, is exposing individuals to, in a way that, that uh, fuels this kind of mobilization and radicalization. And, and to fight that is obviously uh, more complicated, but um, of, of course we need to restore the representative and inclusive character of democracy. We need to look beyond government. We need to learn new ways of cooperating with civil society, again with media, and that involves changing the business model of journalism without at the same time creating, I think, uh, two classes, one of the elites that are able to pay for quality news and the rest, which, by the way, happen to be uh, the more active voters, uh, that, uh, that, that will only uh, afford uh, the current, uh, pardon my French, BS that's, that's in, on, on many media channels. Um, we need to think, What's our own narrative? What are we proposing? What's the alternative and convincing vision that we are proposing for upholding uh, liberal values? Uh, we, we need to make sure that there is a space on social media and traditional media where there's actual plurality of views and, and where, again, uh, we're helping people make sense of what's happening and we're providing the kind of filters that will not turn into bubbles. Um, and ultimately, I think we need to, uh, you know, invest in the resilience of communities. Very often, it's grassroots, it's local communities, even corporations, by the way, they are communities. So I think there, there's another role for business. And we need to look at the key institutions of uh, representative democracy. And, um, you know, I'm, uh, unfortunately, uh, we're happy, I think, in Central Eastern Europe to offer models of how the judiciary may come in uh, under repeated attack, the media may come under repeated attack, uh, and then the parliament, and then all of the institutions of representative democracy in a way that further undermines citizen confidence in those institutions. So I think, uh, you know, there's, there's lots and lots on our hands. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, you know, I, I often come up against uh, uh, disappointed looks on the, face of, on the faces of people who are saying, is that the best you have to offer, just telling us that we need to change fundamentally? Um, but I'm afraid this is about changing fundamentally a lot of the things that we've been uh, thinking of in, uh, in a more conservative fashion. Thank you for those great points, Charles. Well, well this issue of resilience and uh, the NGO community is very interested in holding a lot of meetings talking to each other about it. Uh, it's uh, all very fine, but if we allow the Putinista criminal networks to operate within our borders, uh, hanging around conference tables talking about resilience isn't really gonna get the job done. What will get the job done is what Michael 
was talking about is uh, muscle and uh, what the Sp Spaniards are doing. And the objective of Prosecutor Grinda and his colleagues is quite interesting. They're not trying to save the, the world. They have no illusions about that. They cooperate in very clever ways with Russian law enforcement, knowing, I think, the strategies, they're not gonna get anything, but they'll get hints. There'll be negations that they can interpret and all sorts of things, and it's better than, than nothing. I mean, they're, the uh, Russians, who are also clever, are forgetting there a little bit the old mafia saying, never let a man know what you're thinking. So I think, and Grindus strikes, I think, us as a rather intelligent, Man, a little bit younger than me for that matter, which I could do without, but you know, nothing's perfect. Uh, and what the Spaniards are doing is not focusing on their resilience, but they are kicking the crooks out. That's the purpose of what they're doing, and I think that that's the right approach, and that we should invest in law enforcement and kleptocracy deterrence. Uh, may I answer the question about real estate. Now, I actually didn't mention real estate in my remarks, but this gentleman may have uh, read uh, the New York Times and other newspapers where this is covered a great deal, or he may have read some of the material that the uh, kleptocracy, initiative, uh, uh, kleptocracy Initiative has put out over the last four and a half years, or uh, been to uh, one of its events, whatever, I don't know. Um, and for that matter, your, your sweater is perfect for asking this question, uh, the light blue sweater, because it is decorated, the Navy part, with a Swiss cog railroad that cascades down your arms, which is, I think, perfect for this. Now, in terms of our, our, our dear uh, President of the United States, uh, you referred to his real estate empire, and I'm not sure about that. I uh, uh, co-authored a piece with Jeffrey Gedman, parenthesis and, and commercial advertisement, who is, as of a couple of weeks ago, the new editor-in-chief of the American Interest magazine. He had been president and CEO of uh, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, so never occurred to me he might be interested in our little joint, but turns out he was. Uh, and uh, this was a piece that appeared summer before last in The Hill based on a little note, observation of mine, which was that no U.S. financial institution or bank or anything had lent our current president of the United States a dime in the 10 years preceding his election uh, to his current office. And that does seem a little odd that someone like that would get close to any elected office of any sort whatsoever, but it uh, happened, and actually the only lender was Deutsche Bank, and initially they were doing it through their real estate arm, and then the real estate uh, part of Deutsche Bank uh, decided to drop this, and it was all going through the private banking operation of Deutsche Bank, and Lord knows what the origin of those funds being funneled through there was. In terms of there being any sort of real estate empire there at all, that empire may not be the right word because we don't know. Uh, we have no balance sheet. We have no income statement. For all we know, uh, the Trump Organization is billions and billions of dollars in debt. We have absolutely no idea of Trump's, uh, Trump's excuse me, the President of the United States' net worth, and nor would his tax returns tell us much because all the tax returns tell you is what uh, uh, dividends he's received, what capital gains. It is absolutely not a balance sheet. It would tell us nothing 
uh, about his, uh, his, his balance sheet. So um, I think I've covered that a little bit, maybe. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, I'll just say very quickly on, on two of the questions. First, in terms of uh, 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 how do we protect ourselves down the road? You know, I'm, I'm a journalist, and I think uh, you know my bias is clear on that exposure. Um, uh, the more you shine the light on what the Russians are up to, the more people will be on guard. The more they will be on notice. And you know, to a great degree, the fact that we did not see. Uh, in the 2018 uh, uh, congressional elections, the same sort of activity that we saw in 2016 is, is, is evidence of that because um, uh, what the Russians did was exposed. Um, uh, we were all looking for it. The U.S. government was, was, was looking for it, as were you know, the media and lots of uh, uh, independent institutions as well, including the political party. Uh, now, do, does that mean the threat is gone or is over? No, I don't think so. I think it's uh, more likely they were laying low and um, uh, uh, and are, you know will likely be coming up with new ways we're not thinking of uh, to achieve the same goals of uh, of disrupting um, our uh, uh, political process and sowing dis uh, uh, discontent. Um, and um, as far as the question goes about um, uh, you know, uh, why are we suddenly paying all this attention to now? Isn't this, you know, didn't, you know, hadn't this been going on for years? Absolutely. Uh, you know, just go back and look at uh, Soviet active measures uh, over the years, which, you know, in another way was very much a playbook for what um, uh, the Russians were doing in the last election, uh, and something that the United States government was very attuned to uh, during the height of the Cold War. In fact, you know, during the, even, you know, during the Reagan years, there was all sorts of efforts to expose and counter Soviet active measures. You know, a, a prime example was the conspiracy theory that um, uh, uh, AIDS was uh, had been hatched in some uh, uh, U.S. Pentagon uh, uh, lab and uh, unleashed uh, upon the world, something that really had an impact in Africa, spread uh, quite um, uh, quite a bit. In fact, there's a famous incident in Zimbabwe when um, uh, the vice premier sort of uh, you know uh, went public saying that um, uh, his fellow countrymen should pay no attention to um, uh, what was being urged by health workers uh, uh, in terms of safe sex and other protective measures, saying because AIDS is really the product of the Americans and has nothing to do with um, the conduct of our own people. Um, and you can draw a straight line uh, between the uh, conspiracy theories that were being um, spread uh, during the Soviet days of active measures uh, back to what the Russians uh, have been doing in more recent years. So um, uh, that's not a reason to dismiss at all what the, uh, 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 what the Russians have been doing through social media and other, uh, 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 other ways of in spreading conspiracy theories. Um, it's actually uh, a reason to be paying more attention to them. Uh, thank you. Before I ask you to thank our panelists, let me just add one more line. I, I like the point about kicking crooks out. I would add kicking intellectual crooks out as well, because th these are also 
people that uh, make a lot of mess within our societies. And actually, we in the center, forgive me, Heather, one little ad, we are engaged in sort of uh, kicking them out by providing the public, but also the experts with um, uh, as much serious arguments as possible to counteract the, the propaganda that Russia has been disseminating. And not just Russia, but the people here in the West that uh, do uh, the, in the, on their behalf. And this is one of the examples, the fresh publication of us, the, uh, the Crimea annexation case in the light of international law. It's an English edited volume with uh, prominent international lawyers from all over the world analyzing the whole thing from the perspective of international law. This is how we try to increase costs of disseminating propaganda by those who name themselves intellectuals. That's it from me. Please join my uh, the very great thank you for the panelists for this discussion. Ernest, thank you. I know, Michael, thank you. I know you have to scoot. Go ahead if you need to scoot. I just want to say thank you. I know this has been a very very uh, rich morning of discussion, tough topics. Uh, we can tend to admire the problem, as Ernest said, but we really have to focus on solutions, making tough decisions, being transparent. Uh, and I'm so grateful that my think tank colleagues and other partners are, are working very hard to develop those policy solutions. On behalf of CSIS and certainly my colleagues at CPRDU, thank you for joining us. We hope you will stay before you go out into that bad weather again. Please stay for a delicious lunch. Please have some good time to talk about the works that we're doing and others are doing. Thank you for coming to CSIS and thank you for your interest. You're a wonderful audience. Have a safe day. Stay warm out there. Thank you.